The uncreative executive that wants to be creative is that is a classic story in Hollywood. I mean, that's that's really like a villain in a film about a movie about a guy trying to make a movie. Yeah, I mean, I th- always thought I, I will give credit for things like I m- remember working with Bob Weinstein, and I always thought like the first thing he would say was spot on. Like they they love movies and they have a good sense of movies, and he would say something, he'd be like, ah, that. What happens between the second act and the third act? It's a bunch of bullshit. It doesn't work. And you'd go, yeah, you're right. It is. But like when he went to the next level of the detail of what's wrong with it, it's kind of like someone going like, that joke's not funny. Here's how it would be funny. Mm, and you're like, no, no, no. Right. The first part of your sentence was all he needed. <laughs> I don't need you now to tell me how to make it funny. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Halloween 2007. As referred to in the book I was reading earlier, they just call it Halloween 07. I mean, it was supposed to be, I guess, originally Halloween 9. And as we'll talk about a little bit later, that originally intended to be a sequel to Halloween Resurrection. But the man of the hour, too sweet to be sour, Roberto Zombarelli stepped in and said, hold on, I'm going to throw <laughs> my hat in this, in this game. I'm going to throw my hand in. Hello, and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and friend, brother, Julio. Julio, we go from one extreme to another. We go from the celebrated career and legacy of Winona Ryder to the uh, (laughs) peaks and valleys of the Halloween franchise as we begin, uh, as you coined the term, and I really enjoy uh, Haddonfield Nights is what we'll be calling this arc as we launch into a six-part series of Halloween. So um, th- this obviously is something that I've been toying with the idea for some time, and after we concluded the summer with Nona, Julio was more than gracious to hop into it. So we have arrived, and boy, what a way we have begun. <laughs> I just, I literally, Alex, as you called to start the, the recording, the credits, the end credits were rolling on Rob Zombie's Halloween, and I was still recovering from from my third viewing of this movie, which I said it on Twitter. I never would have thought that, you know, after watching it once, I would have thought that's enough, but I didn't have a podcast <laughs> back then, and somehow <laughs> life has made it to where twice more I've watched it. I could hear your clip from, um, or your sound drop, or whatever, uh, 
the audio clip, the bite from our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode, the original of just you going, why would anyone want to watch this? And and then me like I was like I was already ready for you to say that. And I was already formulating my arguments like for the future. I was like, all right, when he says that, that's this is why I'm going to say why. But uh, Um, no, this is not to get too far ahead into real talk. Um, I think that there's something I have an answer for that. The why is just because Rob Zombie's attached to it. Even if you're not a, uh, you may not be a Halloween fan, but you are probably a Rob Zombie fan if you're watching it, uh, or at least you're not averse to the idea of Rob Zombie directing a movie uh, or, or a Halloween installment. So uh, there is a why. Why? Because Rob Zombie's directing it. If nothing else, there's there's not novelty. Uh, what what drives you to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre if you don't know who Toby Hooper is? And you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not the phenomenon that it was. You know that that would become later. That's that's a completely different thing. But you know, with this, you can be like, at least say, hey, well, the guy who directed it wrote Durango, uh, was it 65? <laughs> He's got that song under his belt. Hey, um, Malcolm McDowell's in it. Is he, though? I mean, I know he's on screen, but is he in it? I I, I think so. I mean, there is, there is a version of Malcolm McDowell that's, that's in this movie. It's the uh, Tupac, uh, the Coachella hologram of Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> Just reciting lines they already had uh, recorded somewhere else. It's the Doom bot. You know how Dr. Doom, he gets killed every now and then, but then it's revealed that it wasn't him. It was just one of his Android doubles. Yes. Yeah, it's the the Malcolm bot. Malcolm McDowell, of course, returning to the podcast for the first time since Tank Girl. I think the the two crowning, the the keystones of his (laughs) career, Tank Girl and Halloween from 2007, uh, which, for the intents and purposes of uh, the Haddonfield Knights series and the Contrarians, can we agree, Julio? This will be we'll, we'll refer to this as Rob Zombie's Halloween. I think that's concise enough. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is. I I think that the only two other pos- uh, potential names that could have gone with would be Halloween Z, uh, <laughs> or Halloween Zero. Right, because it's it's just the prequel. It's the, the prequel and a remake all mixed up in one. Uh, just one of the many bold features in this motion picture. So, evil has a destiny, as the tagline told us. And for this episode of The Contrarians, we are going back to August 31st of 2007. Because, of course, a movie called Halloween was released two fucking months before Halloween itself. Um, <laughs> truth be told, it's because the studio was afraid they were going to get their ass kicked by Saw. Because that was the point in time, as I'm sure you remember, Julio, that decade or so where there was a Saw every single Halloween. So which Saw was this one? I don't know. Maybe three or four. I want to. I feel like the first one came out my first year of college. Uh, the one with uh, Carrie Elwes and um, isn't Danny Glover in it? Yes, my Monica God. Potter. What a time to be alive! <laughs> the one was. with the all star cast. Yes, the 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 A list Saw. Uh, <laughs> But before we can travel back to August 31st of 2007, uh, we want to say thank you to uh, new and returning listeners. If you are a uh, returning listener, give us a minute here while we explain our gimmick to our potential first-time new listeners. Um, Honestly, with the fan base that Halloween has, I wouldn't be surprised if some of y'all listening just came here because it had to do with Halloween. So in that case, welcome. You are amongst at least... Uh, one brother in arms in this particular uh, franchise. So, and hopefully by the end of this, you'll have two. Uh, 
but here on the Contrarians, myself and Julio like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's kind of our battle cry. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, uh, a lot of times referred to as certified fresh. And we make a case for maybe why it shouldn't be, maybe why it deserves uh, to be taken down a few pegs. And then on the opposite side of the coin, we usually target movies 30% and below. That's usually the average, uh, often known as rotten. And we make a case for the positive merit, Um, being that Rob Zombie's Halloween is 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. We will be making a case for maybe why it's uh, on par with, you know, the best of the franchise and maybe a little bit misunderstood. More than a little bit. (laughs) Of course, if you want to know how we really feel about this, uh, be sure to stick around for the second half of the podcast where uh, we get way into our uh, true opinions and feelings about it with the aptly titled Real Talk. Also worth mentioning, if you are a really old listener, somebody who's been with us since maybe year one, year two, uh, you might remember <laughs> our our uh, special episode uh, celebrating Thanksgiving with Rob Zombie, in which we covered five, I want to say, of his movies, including mm-hmm. the two Halloweens. Uh, but that was a lot less in-depth. It was uh, Alex, myself, and our friend Corey kind of doing really quick Contrarian's Corner and Real Talk for uh, Devil's Rejects, The Two Halloweens, and uh, his first movie? House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects, uh, The Two Halloweens, and Lords of Salem. There you go, yeah. Uh, And uh, I I actually listened to the Halloween part of the Real Talk because I was concerned that I was going to maybe repeat myself. And uh, thankfully, I think I knew my place at the time (laughs) uh, because I let you and Corey do all the talking. (laughs) I just chimed in with a couple of things that were super obvious, like uh, saying, well, if you hire Rob Zombie to make a Halloween movie, you can't be surprised when this happens. Uh, I think that's the extent of my insight. Uh, since then, I've actually watched the original Halloween and uh, what, Halloween 2, 3, 4, and 5. So uh, I'm coming at uh, Roberto Zombrelli's Halloween uh, with a lot more knowledge this time. Uh, so what I'm saying is the real talk in this episode in the Contrarian's Corner is going to be quite different from that bonus episode from years ago. We are different people. We're different contrarians now. And of course, since then, what has happened is um, uh, is it David Gordon Green and Danny McBride released their 2018, uh, which was just a direct sequel to the original which will be covered in uh, Haddonfield Nights, our six-part series here. So we did release a promo on this, but before we get into our first installment, just to recap, um, we'll be sticking with our uh, typical format of going back and forth between rotten and fresh movies. We kind of just alternate. Uh, So we're starting here with a rotten film in Robert Zombarelli's, (laughs) Roberto Zombarelli's Halloween, uh, and then we will be following it up with the original the 1978 original which i don't know the exact number on it but i guarantee it's pretty high up there and uh fresh on rotten tomatoes we will be following that up with halloween six is it the curse of michael myers it's the one i haven't seen yeah it goes the return the revenge and the curse that's right so halloween six the curse of michael myers starring the incomparable paul rudd as Tommy Jarvis, and uh, then we'll move on, uh, lastly, to the 2018 sequel. Uh, For this month of September, we will have a bonus episode in which we discuss Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and next month, uh, our bonus episode will be Halloween H2O, as both of those kind of fall in the middle. Um, But the 
main thing is keeping in mind here with the four main entries, we are following the canonical chronology of this franchise as this movie is, uh, it starts from the beginning when Michael is a child. So Julio, as is tradition here, I assume you've amassed a couple quotes for us to go over. Yes. Visited the, the old RT got a bunch of uh, green splotches and red tomatoes. We're going to take care of the green splotches, the rotten quotes uh, here in Contreras Corner, starting with Sean Collier from Box Office Profits, who says, It's not thrilling enough for horror hounds, not entertaining enough for casual audiences, not smart enough for franchise fans, and not good enough for anyone. <laughs> Tell <laughs> us how you really of, feel. <laughs> yeah, every single target audience is, is covered here. Um Brian Martyr from Hollywood.com says Rob Zombie is exposed as yet another anti-throwback who aims to disgust instead of frighten. Quality-wise, he achieves that goal. And uh, finally, Brian Holcomb from Beyond Hollywood says some may think it isn't fair to compare Zombie's film to the original. Too bad. It's called Halloween, and I'm pretty sure it's a remake of a movie called Halloween. I mean, that's... It's pretty direct. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to compare it because it's better. It comes across as a superior oof. film if you compare them. So so bring it on, Mr. Whatever his name was. All right. So we embark to Haddonfield, Illinois for our first installment. We are on the roller coaster now that just went and pushed us off. And we are clicking along here. Uh, we begin and I assume this is supposed to be 1978, I assume this is supposed to be basically where the original began, just based on the soundtrack and the fashion of the time. It looks like the end of the 70s, the early 80s, but to my knowledge, it's not specifically dated. And before we go any further, we do need to call out here the big thing that is uh, the differentiation between myself and Julio. I watched the theatrical cut of this, and Julio watched the director's cut. Now, myself, I haven't seen the director's cut, but I know what the big differences in it are. There's a particular scene, uh, which we will discuss, and then there's just kind of additional dialogue and some lines of exposition thrown in. Uh, I don't think it changes the movie overall. Uh, the endings are the same, uh, but there may be a couple times where me and Julio compare and contrast, but... Julio, I guess that's me asking, did it tell you specifically what the time frame was when this movie started? Uh, no, it just said, it just, it just opened with a, <laughs> with a quote from Dr. Loomis. And then I knew that the time was timeless. <laughs> so we see a young Michael Myers in a broken home, uh, a pretty much prototypical broken home. And he has a mask on wearing a kiss shirt. We see he kills his pet rat. Uh, or at least it's implied. We don't see him actually killing it, but um, he then tells his mother that uh, his rat has moved on, uh, named Elvis, which... I think it's the the one thing that's implied in this movie. Again, I I think there is some allusion or direct mention by name to Elvis in every one of Rob Zombie's movies. Uh, it's just... We will get to Rob Zombie being unable to help himself in any capacity with many of the... <laughs> the uh, Easter eggs and throw-ins in this movie. But uh, speaking of Rob Zombie not being able to help himself, uh, Michael Myers' mom, Deborah, is played by his wife, Sherry Moon Zombie, who uh, immediately paints the picture of not the best of um, mothers as she has a, a live-in boyfriend with her, played by uh, is it William Forsythe, yep. who 
is just a terrible, terrible human being. Well, it's just that, you know, Woody Allen makes movies about New York. Scorsese makes movies about gangsters. Uh, Rob Zombie makes movies about just how ugly this world is. It's just, uh, it says Rob Zombie movie from the very beginning. Mind of maybe the surprise that we don't get to see the the rat get killed. But everything Mm -hmm. else, uh, it's just just ugly the way it's shot. Uh, It's intentionally ugly and nasty. The language, the things that these people say to each other and about each other are just uh, disgusting, appalling. Um, And I don't resent the movie for it. I, I just kind of uh, uh, respect its commitment from frame one to being this mirror uh, but in front of the world. It's an ugly world now. I, You know, the first Halloween is from, what, the 70s, right? And this movie, I mean, it's just, what, 30-something years later? So the world has changed in what scares us, what drives us uh, to have these these very primal reactions. Uh, those things have, have changed too. Now we need something a lot harder than what John Carpenter did way back when. So I, it's good. I, I, I don't like it. It's not a pleasant experience. And I'm going to repeat this throughout Contrarian's Corner, but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie or it's a movie that's not achieving what it's set out to achieve. Yeah. It, I think you could uh, definitely say Rob Zombie strives to show us the ugly in the world. And he also, the also has like the anti Juno dialogue where you're like real people don't talk like this, but because it's just so disgusting and vile, not because it's just so cute and whimsical. <laughs> it's more like, I hope real people don't talk like this. Uh, William Forsythe though, uh, again, we're, we're dealing here with an entire cinematic universe when it comes to Rob Zombie. Obviously we're dealing with the franchise of Halloween, but as we'll see throughout this, Rob Zombie has his players that he likes to rotate and uh, we'll get to a few more uh, before too long, but Michael's sister, of course, Judith Myers, uh, is also a nasty person that says some pretty shitty things to her brother. Um, all of this exists, this opening scene here, to paint what just kind of a broken home, shitty family, and um, very unsupportive system that Michael comes from. Uh, we see him at school uh, that same day. Uh, the The young man who played uh, young Michael in this, I have no idea how to pronounce his name. So we're just going to be calling him Young Michael. It's uh, D-A-E-G, and then the last name is F-A-E-R-C-H. So God bless you, young man, but uh, you're just going to be Young Michael for the intents and purposes of what we're doing here. Um, Someone I do know is the kid from Spy Kids comes in and starts bullying the shit out of him in the bathroom. Is this the most adult you've seen the, the kid from Spy Kids? Have you ever seen him in anything else? No, this this seemed this was like Elizabeth Berkeley in uh, Showgirls. This was I'm not you know that innocent and cute, and so I'm gonna do what I can to distance myself from the image I have. I know Spy Kids isn't a Disney movie, but it's definitely a a child's film. Daryl Sabara is the guy's name, and like the, his first few lines of dialogue, he says like the the f word, the fuck word. Uh, he says, come, it's just like, all right, dude, we, we get it. You're trying to distance yourself artistically here. I'm just worried that Rob Zombie being the filmmaker that he is, if nobody's seen this guy since this movie came out, it is possible that he killed him for real. (laughs) He did, um, shit. I forget the name of the director who directed Cannibal Holocaust, but the idea of just, (laughs) he made him sign a, um, an agreement that he would disappear into the ether just to sell like the intense uh, effects of the movie. So yeah. And he's just bullying young Michael and he 
he pulls out a newspaper ad of a, a nude Sherry Moon zombie and is just grilling him relentlessly about his mom being a whore and his sister being a whore. And so, of course, they get into a fight and Spy Kids has his little backup there. And it it harkens back to a time when teachers were respected because, like, there's some teacher just roaming the halls and he comes in and he just, just he's this old fucker, but he just starts directing traffic. He's like, you over there, you over there. He yells at the teacher. He says, fuck you. Uh, he gets pulled into the principal's office. Oh, no, because the guy is the principal. That's right. And he pulls him in, and they find a fucking dead cat in his bag and all these pictures of these animals he's killed. So he calls in his mom, and different to the story of the original, which was just basically that uh, Dr. Sam Loomis was assigned this patient, Michael Myers. Here, he kind of shows up, and he's wanting to help out Deborah Myers and explaining, you know, hey, I think you should have your son psychologically evaluated. And what do you uh, What do you make of this entrance that uh, Michael Malcolm McDowell gets as Doctor Loomis? I make of it that he showed up and didn't like the wardrobe and just wore what he was wearing, and he just looked like the <laughs> coolest cat around because he like he's almost fucking strutting when he walks in. Yep it it is absolutely ridiculous, and he he's like wearing aviators inside, right? Yep. <laughs> It's just, uh, I mean, I, I, again, I appreciate the effort that Rob Zombie and his team, including Malcolm McDowell, went to differentiate this Dr. Loomis from classic Dr. Loomis, who is, I mean, I would imagine after Michael Myers, probably the second biggest character in the Halloween franchise up to this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say even bigger than Laurie. So uh, yeah. it's iconic. So you need to com- uh, compete against that by by creating a new icon of your own and i think that Ma- malcolm mcdowell goes for it and and i would say he succeeds uh i never knew this until doing my research for this uh i i don't know things could have changed since 2007 but when this movie was made malcolm mcdowell had never seen or watched the original halloween and it shows because you know you would think in a lot of cases someone would just basically do like an impression of Donald Pleasance and Malcolm McDowell's just like fuck it I'm doing whatever I want here and that includes having long hair and aviators showing up and you want to talk about the antithesis fucking Donald Pleasance is balder than a cue ball and you know Malcolm <laughs> McDowell shows up almost with a ponytail intact so he's there he wants to help all the while uh I believe it's the first uh kick-in of the iconic Halloween theme that we get here as young Michael runs away into the woods and I guess he knows um, Spy Kids' route home because he cuts him off in the woods and this scene somehow, I've seen this movie at least ten times and it always is more brutal than I remember. Yep, but I I think that one of the reasons it hits you so hard is because uh, here's one of the main moments where the movie starts forging its own path for for real and that is that it shows you uh without a shadow of a doubt that little kids can be dangerous i mean it's set up by the music and it's set up by the conversation that loomis and uh the principal and sherry moon are having it's it does a good job of setting up that michael myers the murderer the the myth doesn't just come out of nowhere it doesn't come out of thin air it it was there were warning signs there was he was a troubled child from the beginning and he was dangerous from the beginning and then in this movie you see that society and uh, especially Loomis <laughs> kind of failed him and let him fester and get even worse uh, but it all can be traced all the way back to when he was a little kid um, so to me that's much scarier than 
Michael Myers just kind of showing up and starting killing people, and we never even know why. Yeah, it's a it becomes a nature versus nurture type argument when you get into it. Uh, and what's displayed here, I think a lot of it is left up to the viewer's interpretation. So Michael's got the taste for blood, and it tastes good. That's what young Michael says, because he goes home that night, and he's ready to go out for Halloween, but uh, young Jenny won't take him out. Uh, we have Sherry Moon. Mother Deborah has a shift at the... Uh, I can't the Red Rabbit or something. I don't know the <laughs> the gentleman's establishment in Haddonfield, which Scarlet I Scarlet Letter. <laughs> yes, Haddonfield seems like a a pretty small town to begin with, so I can't imagine the the digs in a strip club in that town. We're not talking about those Dallas strip clubs that you have to pay a hundred dollars to get into with like tens across the board. We're talking like women work their shift at the Piggly Wiggly and then head over to pick up an extra twenty. <laughs> Uh, do you think there's a buffet, like a, a 24-hour buffet where uh, Sherry Moon's dancing? This is where hopes and dreams come to die. But I think it goes to show that for all her failings as a parent, Sherry Moon is trying to do what she can to provide for her family. But the unfortunate part is she leaves Michael alone with uh, drunken William Forsythe, who calls him the F-word and uh, just kind of berates him relentlessly. And then with his sister on Halloween, and his sister refuses to take him out trick-or-treating. And I did have to do the, the searching here. He's 10. And she says, aren't you a little old for that? No. <laughs> yeah, like, I think 14 is when I started thinking I was too old for trick-or-treating. No, 15. I think 14 was the last time I went. Because still, up until you like get into the raging hormones of your mid-teens, the idea of free candy is always still cool. So no, he was he was not too old for this. But... She done fucked up by saying she wasn't going to take him trick-or-treating. <laughs> I don't know. I would be kind of freaked out, especially the sister. I think she, you know she knows that Michael is dangerous. Maybe she's not really... Maybe she doesn't think he's dangerous. But she, think, he know, she knows that there's something wrong with him. The stepfather doesn't take him seriously, and the mom, Sherry Moon, is just oblivious, like, in denial. But the sister knows that he's killing animals and that there's something just off about this kid and i honestly don't put it past her and i i can kind of understand if she just wants him out of the house right i, I she doesn't want to hang out with this kid because he's just he's a murderer she she doesn't know it uh it, i think she knows it in the back of her head so it's not that she thinks that he's too old to go out trick-or-treating it's just that she doesn't want to hang out with him um and that's understandable <laughs> Yeah, and then his night goes from bad to worse because it looks like he might he might have hit up like two or three homes just on his street because we cut to a shot of him eating circus peanuts, which are the worst candy in the world. It's like categorically proven. And so his night can just not get any worse at this point. So naturally, what do you do in this situation? <laughs> How do you spice up your Halloween night when candy has been a bust? Thus begins... Uh, no, okay, so the original, there's no William Fourth side character, but there is the boyfriend and the girlfriend that he kills. This this is essentially where the original begins. We see, we see that uh, Michael goes on a reign of terror through the house. William Fourth side is passed out drunk. Um, I, he's one of those actors. I'm sorry, listeners. I just always have to refer to him by his full name. He can have characters in movies, but no. He's getting duct taped to a chair and then gets his throat slit in a pretty fucking gruesome death. Uh, the boyfriend of Judith, after they engage in uh, carnal relations, he comes down to make himself a sandwich, 
and gets bashed over the head with a baseball bat. This is how the mask is debuted in this. Uh, the boyfriend brought along the Michael Myers mask, or I, I don't know what it he thought it was when he bought it. <laughs> it was but, not a Michael Myers mask. <laughs> yeah. It, and so he buys this to attempt to scare his girlfriend. While they're having sex. Yeah, he, he, he says he wants to do it with the mask on, which... She's that girl's got daddy issues, but not that big of them. And <laughs> so Michael, in the act of killing the boyfriend, takes the mask, puts it on. And this, I would argue, is a way more terrifying visual than big ass. Um, what's his name? Tyler Maine, the seven footer who played Michael, because the mask is like so big on this kid. And so it's like this giant head, but he's this little kid underneath with a clown suit on. It looks fucking horrific. It's like a terrifying visual. Well, yeah, and there's also the the fact that you see the escalation. I think that the movie tricks you somewhat uh, into sort of empathizing with Michael. I mean, nobody, nobody sane condones murder, right? But Spy Kids had it coming. He was an asshole. He was a bully. <laughs> he, he was hurting a lot of people. So you don't really, when he gets killed, it's kind of horrible. You kind of look away, but at the same time, you don't really feel bad. Uh Willem Forsyth, I mean, that that guy, the things that he would have done if he was not, because he's wheelchair-bound, right? In the movie, he, he talks about not being able to move. or uh, So it, it feels like good riddance. It's like with the way he talks, it seems surprising he hadn't already been killed by someone in his life. Exactly. Uh, but then when he gets to the boyfriend, you're like, all right, that's that was uncalled for. That kid wasn't even... Really rude. He was just there to get laid. I would argue that he does violate a rule because he goes and starts eating their food without. He goes into their fri- refrigerator <laughs> and takes out what looks to be very freshly sliced deli meat. I would be fucking furious if some outlander came into my house and started eating my fresh meat. But I get your point. Right. I, I mean, I assume that he had permission from from his girlfriend. From, oh yeah, uh, you're, you're probably right. From the from the sister and. Um, and it's it's vicious too. I mean, it just he beats the shit out of that guy, and so now you're startled. And then by the time that he gets to the sister, well, yeah, the visual is creepy with the mask and everything. But also, you just uh, you've slowly transitioned from being sympathetic somewhat toward Michael to just being horrified. And uh, so when he attacks the sister, it's just uh, you're on the opposite end of where you started. Yeah, it pretty much is a. A very more brutal merry-go-round than in the original, because the original we just kind of see um, reaction shots of these youngsters getting stabbed. But he stabs his uh, older sister, and she wanders out in the hallway, and then he just kind of comes and finishes the job on her. I can't remember if he stabs her or beats her with the baseball bat as well. I think he just stabs her in the back a bunch. And then he goes and hoists the baby of the family. I can't remember the... He calls her Boo. I don't remember if she has an actual name that's ever established at any point in time. I just um, remember Boo. Hey, Boo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then he goes and sits on the doorstep with her. Um, we did skip over, like I said. Say what you will about Rob Zombie. The man knows how to craft a soundtrack. In the moments of distress oh, yeah. when when young Michael's eating his circus peanuts <laughs> and we see Sherry Moon dancing, uh, Love Hurts plays in the just... <laughs> delicious medley of chaos hell of a needle drop (laughs) so sherry moon eventually returns home after her night at the factory and sees michael out front with the baby a small child dressed as a clown holding an infant is never it it, (laughs) that image has never like been the precursor to anything good 
And so she's just kind of like, hey, what's going on? And he, at this point, isn't speaking. And she obviously goes inside and discovers the hell that has become her, her homestead. This, of course, leads to him being confined to Smith's Grove uh, Institution, which has been essentially, it's not a prison, but it's like a mental facility that it's, holds um, people in. What do they call Arkham Asylum? I don't know. I mean, is he criminally insane? <laughs> it's, uh, I, I guess, a mental institution. But yeah, he he has to be Sanatorium? confined to a cell. San, uh, yeah. Uh, sanitarium. The- sanitarium? Maybe that's the Metallica song. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> this is this is uh, probably the the biggest other contribution of the Rob Zombie version of this story. I think because your average horror movie would have just fast forwarded to uh, to adult Michael Myers and let the fun begin. Because you technically you don't need to establish anything else. You've uh, if if your goal was to establish that he was a fucked up kid from the very beginning and that he grew up you know by now you've shown me enough that i can connect the dots and go yeah that tracks he will become michael myers uh but but instead we get a really long sequence a good chunk of the movie that's just his development that, that kid he gets a lot more to do because now we get to see him slowly become michael myers uh but more importantly i think this this is about the relationship between between loomis and michael and how it develops it's uh, to me this third time around watching the movie i realized that that's really what the movie is about the movie is a it's a tragic love story between this this uh this doctor and the patient that he could never save yeah and we see the descent into madness for young michael as he begins becoming completely obsessed and fixated with these masks that he creates uh you know his favorite color is black and he always wants to wear a mask to cover his ugly face uh, all the while, his mom, Deborah, is still uh, visiting regularly. It essentially culminates in a scene uh, where he's completely stopped talking to Dr. Loomis. But uh, Deborah comes over for a lunch. Dr. Loomis goes to walk her out, and there's just a innocent nurse watching Michael. And he acts on his instincts at this point. And I think it's a fork that he just takes to her throat, and um, he, he kills this poor woman. And this is a lot for those involved to handle. We see here the cracks in Loomis starting to form all just by facial expressions because the uh, if I remember the audio is drowned out and it's just the sound of a siren going off while this is happening. Is that the same in your version? Uh, Yeah, but then halfway through uh, Love Hurts starts playing again. (laughs) (laughs) Just throwing it back. (laughs) My Sharona kicks in. the I don't know if this was in your version because this this is something that maybe could have been cut in the theatrical. But I love the, just the vulnerability of uh, Loomis because um, you say the cracks start showing, but really I, I think that you also see along with Michael's descent into madness, you also see Doctor Loomis's confidence eroding as as the months go by. Because what well, I mean, we talked about it, he walked in like he was the coolest cat. Uh, mm-hmm. at that school and and then slowly here you, you can kind of see that he starts realizing that Michael is just not interested that, that, that there's no progress in fact he's going backwards and uh, he sort of slowly starts sounding like a loser and, and then by the end of this sequence you, you kind of I was convinced uh, that that Loomis sucked. I mean, I don't know why he was still working. Why, why was he allowed to treat this patient when really he wasn't getting any getting any results? Uh, Michael clearly gets worse 
during this treatment. And and Loomis is just kind of begging him to talk. He's like, hey, Michael, uh, you should, uh, you know, if you don't talk to me, then I'm going to have to tell them that you're not talking to me. And then it's just going to look bad for both of us. Uh, mm-hmm. By the time that the, the murder happens and he's walking uh, Sherry Moon out, he's literally saying, hey, you know what? I'm out of options. Let's try shock therapy. Does he see, did he say that in your version? Yeah. The, the only thing that is different, uh, in my understanding of these two scenes is the nurse that he kills. Um, when she picks up the picture of Michael and boo, she says, cute baby. That's the theatrical version. And the director's cut, she says, couldn't possibly be related to you because that was the thing of like the studio thought, that Michael shouldn't be killing based on like revenge or retribution or anything like that. It should just be like completely random. The things he does, but Loomis's suggestion of shock therapy was in there going back a, a moment, just to add to like, you're, you're picking up on that. Cause that's true. And it's a lot of things I hadn't really thought about previously. Um, when they do their first therapy session and he fires up his audio recorder and he puts like a Jolly Rancher in his mouth and Michael tries to talk into the mouth and he puts his hand up to stop him and he's just like checking all his equipment and everything. Yeah, that's a good call out. I I, I think I don't give Malcolm McDowell enough credit for this as his performance because by the end, he's like just hopeless. He's like, uh, he's desperate for anything to come through. And I guess this is probably the transition period that I hadn't really picked up on. Rob Zombie and Malcolm McDowell laying down subtext. I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, they just, they, I don't know. I, I think that maybe McDowell coming at this, not knowing anything about the original was a great benefit because he might've been able to, to pull back on, uh, you know, the fan service that you can, mm-hmm. that you can fall into when you, when you revere the original too much. And Rob Zombie, as different as this version is, obviously he's a fan of the original and he, he he adores it in its in his own way. So uh, I think it's good that there was somebody like McDowell that could just say, "No, you know, how about we just do this with the Loomis character and actually make him interesting?" And uh, in, in, luckily, he has enough pull, he has enough weight in the industry that that he can be taken seriously when he makes a suggestion like that. So Michael kills this nurse. It horrifies Loomis and uh, Mrs. Myers all the same. And unfortunately, this leads to the end of the line of Miss Sherry Moon Zombie in this film as the weight of the situation. And um, I don't know if guilt's the right word. I I assume there's some guilt that comes in with it as just far as her failings or her perceived failings of a mother. Uh, She commits suicide. And this brings us to an end of the first half of the movie. As from here. You get the the title card, intermission. And then like a 10 minute clock starts running down and then the orchestra in the bottom of the theater starts playing the Halloween theme. Just uh, <laughs> you go, go get your snacks. Your, yeah. Smoke your cigar in the lobby, get your smoking jacket. So this is where essentially the remake of the film begins as we cut to 15 years later. Of course, his escape from Smith's Grove in the original is a bit more, uh, has a bit more levity to it than either of the versions in this. Um, oh boy. But, uh, so 15 years later, the only person in the Smith's Grove, aside from Loomis, that Michael seems to have any draw to, and even with Loomis, I use that term loosely, is uh, Danny Trejo, who works as a guard at the uh, institution, and they've formed a slight bond over the years, and just that, not that they talk and they don't crack wise together, but there's clearly a connection of 
whatever semblance of trust that Michael can assemble. Is and this the most uh, the most tame, the most uh, friendly you've ever seen Danny Trejo be? It's definitely the most tame in terms of like, uh, do you see him die in the director's cut? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and how? Yeah. Okay. So he like kind of yells a couple times in that, but his dialogue is just so subdued and his approach to it all is he's just like old man Danny Trejo and he gets the amazing old like the you know he was doomed from the start when he said the line of man I'm three months away from retirement I was like god damn it Danny Trejo you're gonna die uh machete no more (laughs) no so Loomis pieces out of the situation we get this uh big you know diatribe from Malcolm McDowell about how He's like, fuck you. I can't get through to you. And this is, you know, uh, my biggest failing in my career. He has the line of, I've been treating you for 17 years. And he says, that's twice as long as my first marriage. And I really feel in this scene, though, he's talking to himself more than the audience or Michael. He's just admitting that I can't do this. Yeah, 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 definitely. But it's also, I I, I thought it was fascinating because uh, I guess by virtue of Michael being silent and just standing there, uh, what it came across to me was... uh, Having established that Loomis has failed over and over, and that's as much on Michael as it is on him. I mean, in the end, he's the professional. He's the he's the guy with how many years of experience and everything. Uh, he's being unable to accomplish anything here. Uh, so, to me, he's he's like the shitty boyfriend that, even though he's shitty, he gets to be the one to to do the breakup. Uh, Michael's just sitting there, and and Loomis kind of like goes, "It's not me. It's you. Fuck you." And then he leaves. <laughs> Yeah, and Michael's sitting there like me when you were going on about how emotional Endgame was. He's just sitting there staring <laughs> with just silent contempt. Just, <laughs> will you shut up already? <laughs> so Malcolm McDowell pieces out, and it leads to us learning that he wrote a book about the situation, and now is he goes on to some universities to speak on the matter, and he's basically monetized the situation. Uh, he's ran away from the fact that he failed his you know quote-unquote mission, but because it's this highly publicized case, has gone on to write about it and uh, you know kind of sensationalize a lot of it. That that aspect is really more explored in uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween too. But they kind of dip their toe in it here. He planted the seeds. There you go. Rob Zombie's you know always planting two steps ahead, like a really good carpenter. <laughs> and this okay this is where it leads to the biggest differentiation between the two versions we watched the the escape from smith's grove so i think mine was a bit more fun to watch than julio's because it's just kind of carnage and uh, mischief uh what happens is we get uh, members of the rob zombie cinematic universe and we have bill mosley uh tim tolls uh leslie easterbrook staples of his filmmaking they play a group of cops that are going to transfer michael myers to a different institution as if you can believe it it goes awry and michael escapes he kills all of them he um does an homage to halloween four it's either halloween four or five i think it's four that starts uh, julio you've watched it you might remember but the kill where he like takes his thumb and puts it through a guy's forehead do you remember that at all yes I couldn't tell you which Halloween it goes in. Though. Yeah, I don't remember either, but like the, just that kill. They do an homage to it where he puts his thumb through uh, Leslie Easterbrook's neck, and it just starts, of course, bleeding everywhere. And I think Bill Mosley had the Hayden Pantieri contract, though, where you don't actually see him die on screen. It's just implied. 
He was I supposed to come he, back on Halloween yeah. too. He came in and said, "Listen, motherfuckers, <laughs> I made a lot of money off that Devil's Rejects. Now, if you want me back, these are the deals." So that's how he escapes. It happens pretty quickly. It's uh, by all things else in the movie, fairly innocuous in terms of violence and uh, impact. And then on the way out, we see him kill Danny Trejo, who discovers all these these bodies in a very emotional scene. Now, Julio, uh, <laughs> your escape scene was a little bit different. Uh, yeah, which makes sense, because it being the director's cut, it makes sense that he would just 100% commit to what we were talking about earlier, which is that it's an ugly world, and... Yes, Michael Myers is a monster, but that doesn't mean that he's the only monster. Uh, the way he escapes in the director's cut is two of the orderlies, not Danny Trejo, he's not part of this, but two other randos. Uh, they're going in and they're going to rape one of the inmates. Uh, but then just to make it more fun, they decided to first give Michael a go. And so they bring her into Michael's cell and Michael just ignores him. So then they rape her in front of him. But he doesn't react until one of them grabs one of his masks and puts it on. And then Michael kills both of them. Presumably, he also kills the woman. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you're just like the average person, just listening to this description, you're already recoiling. Uh, And believe me, Rob Zombie paints it as disgustingly as you would expect, and in a way as is consistent with the tone he established in the movie. Uh, And once again, he kind of plays with you because it's kind of like when he killed the stepfather, you're like, these guys are just despicable. So you are kind of, there's a part of you that's like, fuck yeah, you know, he just completely destroyed them. Uh, But at the same time, Michael Myers keeps going and he kills like an innocent receptionist and then he kills Danny Trejo uh, which means that really the world is just a hopeless nasty ugly place (laughs) and the few people that are not horrible like Danny Trejo are just caught in the middle and uh, have very little chance of surviving Um, it's a bleak bleak vision of the world but like I said years ago and I said tonight it's just what do you expect from a Rob Zombie movie? Uh, that's at this point, it's almost like if I went to watch Rob Zombie's Halloween and I didn't, uh, and I wasn't beaten over the head by this sort of aesthetic and 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 themes, I would feel cheated. So we go from one end of the spectrum in being very uh, confused, disgusted, and just upset by things with Julio's. Uh, director's cut escape scene to just pure unadulterated joy as Rush's Tom Sawyer kicks in and we see the one and only Ken Faree exit a truck with like a pompadour haircut and uh, it's a little bit longer it's kind of like a pompadour afro combo he's got these sick sideburns and he gets out of his uh, 18 wheeler and says yeah Big Joe Grizzly's back in town who's got the crackerjack and then he (laughs) goes in uh he's got it yeah he's he's been on a long trek so he's got to you know drop some load off and he goes into the bathroom and we don't know where this is we don't know what part of the trek between smith's grove and haddonfield that michael's at uh i think someone says at one point it's like a four-hour drive between the two and so michael could have just been hoofing it on foot and he could just be you know fucking on the border of indiana somewhere for all we know but whatever the case is, Ken Foree, wrong place, wrong time. He's just trying to take a shit. 
and then Michael comes in and messes those plans up. And yeah, he uh, ate uh, a taco supreme. He's, yeah, and he's, I got it talking back at me. So can you back off while I pass this beast in peace? I, I like, we joke, but I know like Ken Faree's dialogue in this movie almost verbatim just because it's, it's so funny to me. But of course, it's Michael. So he's relentless and he's trying to get into this stall and. Ken Foree pulls out this giant 007 knife and is like, I'm going to kill you. And then so Michael just returns the favor. And to his credit, going out like the badass that Big Joe Grizzly is, Ken Foree, right before he gets stabbed, he like calls him on. He's like, come on, motherfucker. And then he just stabs him. So at least he went out defiant. He got he, he puts up a fight. Yeah. And yeah, he got a shot in. He has a way more dignified death than that bitch Danny Trejo. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I I could totally see if if Rob Zombie's interest in the franchise had remained, he could have pitched a Joe Grizzly prequel, where he's just driving his truck cross country, uh, taking shits at different gas stations, <laughs> foiling dude, that's like, crime, petty crimes. What's the is it Shutter the streaming horror service? Yes, is that yeah. <laughs> If yeah, if this movie was made in the days of streaming services, like you know how we got that Jesse Pinkman movie, yep. we could have gotten you know eighteen wheeler, the Joe Grizzly tale of him <laughs> just yeah taking shits, buying different porn magazines, and getting into fights across the country. And God, God bless Ken Faree. It was through no real relation. I uh, watched Devil's Rejects over the weekend. I just watched a slew of movies over the weekend, and I watched that. And very similar to this, when he showed up, I just got so happy. I was just like, fuck yes. Um, something that adds a sense of star power and also just overall novelty to the film. But as quick as he entered, as quick as he was gone, the the big significance of this is he was targeted by Michael because you know Ken Fariza he's big, he's Big Joe Grizzly, so he took his jumpsuit and now so he's no longer wearing his scrubs from the uh, mental institution. I think he got some boots too because yeah, it looked like he had trucked through some mud. He's just in bad shape this whole movie. He looks like he smells awful so do you think he was just kind of hanging out around that gas station waiting for somebody that was his size to uh, go into the bathroom he well he stopped at a tailor first in you know <laughs> dothan alabama or wherever he got distracted to when he was making his journey back to haddonfield uh maybe fort wayne indiana he went and saw a tailor so he had his particular measurements and so yeah he was just waiting there at the the truck wash uh and just everyone that came by and you know for all we know, you know, two dozen people had already passed through, but then he saw Joe Grizzly and he's like, there we go. That'll fit me just fine. <laughs> hey, it's Joe Grizzly. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great if those were the only words he says in the movie. Joe Grizzly. <laughs> so, Haddonfield, Illinois. We meet Laurie Strode. New Laurie. New Laurie, played by Scout Taylor Compton, which is a hell of a name. Straight out of um, Compton. <laughs> we meet her family as well. Uh, one of the understandings I have is the lines that her parents have. Um, they have way more lines in the director's cut. And D. Wallace and Pat Skipper play Cynthia and Mason Strode. And for as little as they have to do in this, I thought they added a breath of normalcy that had not been seen in the movie so far. Just acting like normal parents act and especially going from that scene of like you know king kong versus rodan of grizzly and michael myers going at it 
kind of smash cutting to those two talking to their daughter, I thought was a shockingly good change of pace by Rob Zombie here. I agree. I I think that there may be even more to that. Maybe Rob Zombie kind of throwing a dig at at just uh, you know middle class America, the, the white privilege of it all. Or you know we've spent by now what an hour, maybe more, just trudging through the muck of just uh, not just the murder and the violence of uh, Michael Myers's life, but also just all the ugliness surrounding it. And and then suddenly when we come to this house is just it's not just that they look in quotation marks normal but also they just seem so oblivious so divorced from everything that we've experienced so far but you know they're still they, they live in america <laughs> it's just a different uh side of america they uh, live in the same town as all this shit happened <laughs> yeah they seem completely oblivious at the the not just the danger that's coming their way but the danger that was there you know, in years past, uh, did you did you get the the bagel scene in your in your cut? No, um, as I mentioned to Julio in preparation for this, I watched a video on YouTube uh, by a guy named James A. Um, uh, Janice. I do apologize if I mispronounce your name, James. Uh, he hosts a show on YouTube called Dead Meat. Uh, it's basically a show centered around horror films, but he did a cut comparison on this, so I do know what you're referring to, where she kind of like. Uh, makes a sexual gesture with the bagel um seven and yeah okay so in my version she essentially takes it and splits it in half and then like pretends they're her breasts and kind of fondles them but my understanding is uh you you got a little bit more explicit action with the bagels there yeah she she totally fingers a bagel uh, just to, to mess hell with her yeah mom. <laughs> yeah uh which i found uh fascinating best picture because clip. well because laurie laurie strode if you've seen the other movies she is more of a the the diversional type, and mm. yet here, new Lori instantly. That's really the first thing she does when she's introduced is just she starts finger fucking this bagel. <laughs> so it's just the movie Rob Zombie, uh, Scout Taylor Compton, just telling you, uh, nope, this Lori is different. This Lori is not. Don't even bother trying to reconcile this vision with the Jamie Lee Curtis vision. It's a completely different. Uh, kind of teenager which which makes sense because again jamie lee curtis was a teenager from the 70s and that kind of character would be a lot harder to buy in this movie uh, especially in this movie you know let alone you know a movie from 2007 would be already a hard sell but in this movie as directed by rob zombie so far yeah that I, you you couldn't buy it so you need to you need an update uh uh reimagining of uh of laurie and i think that it's it does its job Maybe she she had the hardest uh, job of them all because the thing with Loomis is he has more to play with. Michael McDowell gets to be as different as he want to be, but there's only so much she can do with Laurie because of what their story requires of Laurie. Uh, she's kind of like more stuck in being a victim. So uh, I think uh, in a way, Scott Taylor Compton, she has a harder job and she does she performs admirably. Yeah, and um, just she was actually of the age that they were portraying her at, I believe, when this movie was made. Uh, no, she was in her early 20s. So I appreciate that aspect of it as well, and Rob Zombie sticking true to it. Although Jamie Lee Curtis was like legit 18 or 19 when they made the first one. But yeah, she has the 
unenviable task. I mean, Michael Myers wears a fucking mask, and it could just be a big dude that walks around and just blah. Laurie Strode is iconic in that it's it's fucking Jamie Lee Curtis, and mm-hmm. it's what launched her career. And trying to do that character justice, but also put your own modern spin on it is is a daunting task to say the very least. And much like you said, I think uh, Scout Taylor Thomas or Scout Taylor Compton, excuse me, uh, accomplishes that. It's not too long after that that we're introduced to this film's iteration of Tommy Jarvis, who's played by Skylar uh, G- Gisando. I apologize for mispronouncing that name. Uh, most notably, or recently, of Santa Clarita Diet and Wet Hot American Summer 10 Years Later fame. Um, but he is fantastic as a the Tommy Doyle character in this movie. We've uh, We've had a good run of... Uh not annoying uh, child actors, I think, in recent episodes of The Contrarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, probably the most recent uh, would be Kirsten Dunst and Little Women. And this this little boy, he's up there. <laughs> and he has plenty of opportunities to be really annoying, but he manages to just be right under that line. I mean, he's annoying because he's supposed to be annoying to... Uh, to Lori, but he never, he's not mugging for the camera. He's not overplaying his lines. He's just, he's just his delivery as, isn't grading. Yeah, big fan. And, but honestly, big fan without really thinking about it. Because until you, you just called him out. And that's when I realized, yeah, that kid like never bothered me. Uh, can't really <laughs> say the same about his uh, playmate, the, the little girl that comes over later. <laughs> Yeah, fortunately, her uh, contributions are a bit more limited, or they're not. She's not able to have as much uh, range as, or space, I should say, as young Skyler here. So we see basically a recreation of what happens in the original Halloween. The whole reason that Michael Myers stalks Jamie Lee Curtis in the first one is because it's the first fucking person he sees after he escapes. In this one, he has gone back to his home, and similarly to the original, Jamie Lee Curtis is sent by her dad, who's a real estate agent. Hey, drop this paperwork off at the the old Myers house. And so she does. And uh, this is uh, something cut from my version that I saw online that I laughed really hard at is that when she drops it off, Michael picks up the paper and smells it. Yep. Very <laughs> romantic. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's, if that's supposed to be him being like a hunter or something of like, it, get the I, scent, I didn't boy. take it as that. I took it as just, like, it, it wasn't a, a tracking smell. It was an emotional smell. It was just okay. him suddenly uh, imbibing the essence of his sister. God bless. Yeah. Speaking of God bless, now the meat and potatoes we get to here. Danielle Harris shows up for her third Halloween film uh, as Annie Brackett, the best friend or I guess one of the close confidants of Laurie Strode. And, of course, um, Linda... They're more um, vivacious companion played by Christina Klebb. Linda, of course, played in the original by the incomparable PJ Souls, Riff Randall. And from this point forward, it's a lot of um, 
I would say like the joints of the scene, the things that hold the scenes together are homages to the original, but like the dialogue and what's actually happening that carries us there is a lot different. Cause the, I believe the scene here, they're just talking about boys in the library, but we get that shot of Michael just kind of watching her from across the street. And, um, the difference being here at this point in their respective careers, uh, Christina Klebb and Danielle Harris were very polished actresses. So I yep. feel like their charisma keeps the conversation alive and also keeps us engaged as viewers. Yeah, it, it really, I mean, I don't want to jump the gun and start uh, talking shit about the original <laughs> an episode ahead, but it really, just from my memory of when I watched it and now rewatching this, this is just, this really feels like, you know, three teenagers talking, they're they're allowed to be hormonal, I think, in a way that they really aren't in the original. And that makes sense because in the original, you know, it was like several decades ago. And uh, talking about boys back then is very different than talking about boys in the year 2007. Uh, so it, it just adds to kind of that sense that Rob Zombie is setting this story in the here and now. Now, do you think that the movie is designed to keep you, uh, to make you wonder if, uh, like, let's say you haven't seen the original Halloween and you're watching this movie, you're not familiar with the Halloween series at all. This is your first Halloween movie. Uh, you're watching it at this point in the movie. Do you know that Lori is little boo? Um, yeah, if you've never seen the original, if you have no knowledge of the franchise going into it, then I don't think you do. I think it's very similar to the original in that you just know that she's the first person he's seen uh, since. And yeah, that's a good that's a good call out. Because yeah, if you have no knowledge going in, then no, you, at this point, you have no reason to know that. But then I guess the the side question is how many people watching this movie were not familiar with that bit of the mythology? Uh, what I found fascinating, especially in this last part of the movie is that it really, uh, it manages to play to both audiences. It's one thing to be sitting there and wondering when he's going to kill uh, or when he's going to attack these young girls uh, because he's just a monster that's doing that. Uh, whereas you're sitting there waiting to see what he's going to do once he reaches his sister. Um, mm -hmm. Both experiences are valid and make for, for a good movie, but it's... It's crazy that Rob Zombie actually manages to make it to where you can have those two experiences. You know, it's not that it errs on the side of one or the other. It it just the movie works both ways. Yeah, absolutely. And then it essentially segues into uh I mean this it's possible that people that are Rob Zombie fans that have never seen Halloween were there, so you're already overwhelmed, but then he brings you back to a sense of calm because we get an appearance by Sed Haig in the next scene as the groundskeeper on the uh the cemetery lot in Haddonfield is this is where we come to find out that Judith Meyer's headstone was stolen in an obvious callback to the uh, original. And again, here we have Malcolm McDowell graciously or thankfully, I should say, having never seen the original because he does nothing to deliver this line like Daniel Pleasance or <laughs> Donald Pleasance, excuse me. And you, you have to appreciate that. <laughs> now he's uh, forging his own path. Um, I think it's funny that you just you said that this is a calming presence. You see Captain Spaulding as a groundskeeper. You're like, oh, we're in good hands. Like, imagine that. Yeah, it's a, your you know your uh, comfort food movie, your rainy day movies, <laughs> House of a Thousand Corpses, and then you go into Halloween, having never seen it, knowing nothing about the franchise. You're like, oh god, what's going? Ah, oh, Captain Spaulding's here. We're gonna <laughs> I know be all right. 
It's like Sam Elliott showing up in a movie for normal people. <laughs> uh, yeah, from this point on, it like I said, we've got a lot of allusions or callbacks to the original, and uh, it's it's just a bloodletting from here. We start off at the Myers house where Linda and her boyfriend are killed, uh, reminiscent to Paul and Linda in the original, where Paul is. Um, I believe it's Paul, but he's stabbed through the chest and basically impaled on the wall. And then uh, Michael uses the sheet that he was going to scare her with as a ghost to um, show up in a room. She shows him her boobs, does the is it see anything you like line. And the difference is they added in here. Uh, she calls him Casper, the friendly asshole ghost, which I don't know if PJ souls could have delivered that line. <laughs> Uh, maybe Winona Ryder and Heathers could have gotten away with that sort of a... Oh, that would have ruled. Yes, that would have absolutely been doable. Yeah. Christian uh, Slater would have been like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, what do you think of Paul having sex with his glasses on? That was my main takeaway from <laughs> this sequence. Well, he was on top, too. So this, like... No, 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 wait. He was on bottom. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that makes a bit more sense. He just wants to make sure he has a good view. He's it's his girlfriend is way hotter than he is, so I would want to make sure it was real too if I was him. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it just seemed uh it, it that's what you know, sex scenes, especially sex scenes in horror movies, are just like a dime a dozen and they were they, they could all blend together. So the fact that in this one, the guy's wearing his glasses and he uh he gets a cramp. That just I was like, all right, that added some color there. Such a dork. Um, and because Rob Zombie can't help himself, did I, did you catch what song was playing during the scene? Yes. Wait, no. Is this... Uh, when does the Cowbell song play? It plays twice in the movie. Oh, the Blue Oyster Cult song? Yeah. I yeah, think it plays when su- he kills his sister. Because, uh, yeah, my notes say uh, young Michael is going to ask... Uh, is going to tell his sister that she needs more Cowbell. <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Blue Oyster Cult plays when she's listening to her headphones at the beginning. Uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. Yes, more cowbell, obviously. Uh, no, it's Halloween by the Misfits is playing during this scene. Oh, because, I, I, I miss that. Yeah. Uh, Must watch it again. <laughs> this is a setup. And then also the other Misfits tie-in in this is um, Skyler. Tommy Doyle is dressed up as the fiend from the Crimson Ghost which is uh, the logo, the Misfits logo is based on the character from that movie. So, again, he just can't help himself. He's got a th- I, I, I respect that because that's what I would do if I was a filmmaker. I'd want to just throw in like little Easter eggs for things I like. There, if I ever made a movie, if you and me made a movie together, I would sneak in so many wrestling references you wouldn't even understand. <laughs> it, it would be like the most subtle shit in the world. And that's what Rob does here. And, I, and I, like I said, I got an appreciation for it. So, we get the, the retelling of... Uh, Linda getting choked out. A difference, of course, being in this, he's not using a phone cord. He's just grabbing her by the neck with his hand. It's fucking vicious. Uh, we see Loomis at the gun shop uh, getting a fucking hand cannon, as John Travolta would say in Pulp Fiction. And um, completely random and just... I had to like verify it three different sources. The guy who sells him the gun, the guy who works at the gun store, uh-huh. was the, the drummer from The Monkees. <laughs> the band from uh, is that the sixties or seventies? I mean, are you familiar that, with the monkeys? It's not that random. Uh, Rob Zombie's a musician, so I'm sure he. 
<laughs> just yeah, calls in favors the, here and there. At one of the recent galas, he just got the, you know, he's like, hey, I'm making this movie called Halloween. You want to be in it? <laughs> Can I play the guy that sells the gun to Loomis? <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite scene in the original. <laughs> so it's Halloween night in Haddonfield, so you know that means shit's going to go down. Um, Lori is picked up by Annie at her home. They're going to go out and I think they're, they both have babysitting gigs, but it's going to lead to them gallivanting around with young men and immediately when she leaves the strode uh family are killed um both cynthia and mason strode are like i want to say brutally but it's honestly by compared to everything else it's the more tamer deaths in the movie but the scene the way it plays out is just absolutely off-putting even by rob zombie standards maybe that's the point because everything else is so fucking brutal in the movie this is so much more off-putting because there's not as much gore and viscera to it well yeah but there's also the the utter tragedy that apparently uh mr strode was going to get laid later that night uh unless that that bit was not in your cut but uh right before they go in uh i think he tell he asks his wife if he's gonna get some and she's like, yeah, but first you have to help me with something. And then she goes in and then he starts rubbing his hands and then he gets killed by Michael. So poor guy. The highest of highs to the lowest of lows all in the matter of fucking 10 seconds. I mean, Paul got to get laid before he got killed. This is true. And if Michael could talk, there's a very real possibility none of this would have had to happen because he just chose the picture of Lori to uh, Cynthia's like, he, you know, he wants to say, where is she type thing, but he. He doesn't speak because Loomis failed him, obviously. So he just ends up having to break her neck and go out on the quest all his own. So this is legitimately upon this rewatching one of my favorite things, takeaways from it. I never, I knew they were like out at a, uh, like a Sonic type place. Cause it, this is probably the most prominent uh, Brad Dorff scene in the movie. And Brad Dorff plays Sheriff Lee Brackett, who's the uh, Sheriff of Haddonfield. He's also Daniel Harris, Annie Brackett's dad. It's him and Loomis having a discussion at Haddonfield Burger, which looks like a Dan's hamburger for anyone that lives in the Austin area uh, or Keller's for the Dallas uh, contingent of listeners. And this is probably the best shot scene in it. Uh, I don't know if you really watched or paid attention to it, but like the way he's using the lens flare from the neon lights, it looks fucking incredible. Do you know what I'm referring to? Uh, Somewhat. I... I mean, I, I know which, which scene you're talking about, and but I really, I was just mostly, you know, I, I couldn't remember if the sheriff, how long it would take the sheriff to get on board with the plan. So that's really where my head was at. Because okay. in, in this scene, he seems pretty uh, skeptical, mm-hmm. right? He's just like, you know, Malcolm McDowell, you, you're overreacting. This, you found a dead dog at the graveyard that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I I have to confess that the the visual style, the visual flair, uh, was lost on me. Yet another reason to rewatch it. Got to so, watch it again. Uh, yeah, Brad Dorif essentially tells him though, is like I know you made a a lot of money off this book, and I think you've created this tale that you've bought a bit too far into. And um, I actually, this is the line from this movie that I actually use in my real life pretty frequently, is. Um, he tells him, like, you know, he stole the gravestone. He's like, you're telling me one man picked up a gravestone and moved it across town. He's like, yes. And uh, uh, Brad Dorff says, Doc, I may have been born, but I wasn't born yesterday. 
I I've found ways to use that in my real life uh, on a <laughs> fairly frequent basis. So if nothing else, I took that away from this. But he agrees to let Loomis come along with him, and he's going to ride along with him. And you know, if anything's any troubles afoot, he's going to help him investigate it with him. I have this memory. I think this is why I was also somewhat distracted thinking about it. Uh, I have this memory that the original Halloween spends a lot of time on the sheriff and Loomis kind of driving around aimlessly, (laughs) chasing the ghost of Michael Myers, just always getting too late to where they're supposed to be. And so I think that when I saw them reunited in this version, I instantly felt, oh, no. This this is something I don't like. <laughs> uh, thankfully, they bypass all that bullshit because I think it's just like on the next scene they're already they're 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 on the case. Yeah, and eventually, like they they have the back and forth of he's like I think he's here to get his sister Lori, and uh, we find out through this that Sheriff Brackett knows more about that situation than he's let on, and we get you know the big scene of exposition where he's like, hey, when this happened, I was on the crime scene that day, and I saw this baby, and I didn't want her to grow up with the stigma of this, so I took this baby two towns over and, you know, left it at the step of the emergency room, and then I find out, you know, a couple months later that it was adopted by a family that lives here in Haddonfield, and so he's like always kept this secret to himself, but now he knows this is potentially coming back to really bite him in the tuchus. So, Annie and Lori babysitting. Uh, Annie gives uh, Lori a call, says, hey, my boyfriend's coming over. Let me bring the child I'm babysitting over with you so we can have the house to ourselves. This, of course, leads to uh, some very heavy petting and making out. So this is the point in the film where if you had any questions or potential reservations about it, they are definitely answered and brought to the forefront in that Daniel Harris separates herself from young Jamie Lloyd from uh, nearly 20 years earlier as... Uh, she speaks quite vulgarly and then also starts to disrobe. It's kind of all for naught, though, because Michael shows up and he kind of watches them make out for a little bit. And then he pulls the boyfriend up and stabs him in the stomach and she gets away. And this is honestly the whole visual of it is pretty off putting. But I think artistically speaking is my favorite shot in the movie of when she runs out of the house and then he grabs her and pulls her back in and slams the front door. And then it just goes to dead silence and is a shot outside of the house. Uh I thought that was really cool because it breaks up the intensity and it just brings like a hard stop to it. And is that where it ends on your cut? No, 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 no. Then they go back in the house and he like chases her around and then she pulls a knife on him and then he like just punches her in the face, backhands her really hard because he, for whatever reason, he doesn't actually kill her. He just beats the shit out of her and kind of leaves her for dead. Do you think he could tell that she was, uh, Lori's best friend. And he's like, okay, I won't kill her. I'll just beat her up. He was just thinking, wait, wasn't she supposed to be my niece at one point? I can't beat her up. All right. Uh, I can't kill her. I can't finish the job. But yeah, we see a bloodied and uh, topless Daniel Harris left for dead. And he, in Michael fashion, that kind of bounces around the franchise. He leaves like a decorative display of the bodies he killed where he hangs her boyfriend and puts a pumpkin on her head. That's one of those things of his artistic uh, displays vary in quality throughout the franchise. So I was glad that he at least uh, Rob Zombie threw an homage to it in this as opposed to just leaving a bunch of people in a pool of blood. Well, he seems to be pretty, pretty into arts and crafts when he was in the hospital, at least in my version when they when they come in, you know, when he escapes, what he's doing before he escapes is he's just working on new masks. He's he's his entire 
room, his cell is is full of masks. So reminded me of a uh, Leatherface in that way. <laughs> so Lori comes back to check on Annie. She's bringing the little girl home, um, and of course they find this horrific display. Lori, you know, there's some chase some cat and mouse going on here but eventually she's captured she wakes up in the fucking crawl space of the myers house uh the the headstone is there for judith uh, linda's dead body is there michael appears and demasks and shows her a picture of them as a family she doesn't know what to make of it she kind of pieces together what's going on and sees that he's put his guard down so she grabs the knife stabs him in the neck and flees she tries to get out of the house it's, again, just a lot of cat and mouse. She actually does get out, and then she's on the, the getaway. She falls into this empty pool in the backyard, which, again, it's been fucking 17 years, and they didn't do anything with this house yet, or at least fill the pool. Come on. And You're never going to sell it like that. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. you got to spruce it up if you want to get someone to buy it. And uh, Malcolm McDowell shows up, and he's, he's packing this time. So he pulls out his gun. And uh, Did you get the impression here he didn't want to shoot him? Oh, yeah. 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 I'm telling you, this is really, this is not about Laurie and Michael. This is about Michael and Loomis. He tries to to reason with him. He tries to, Loomis is under the impression, and honestly, I don't blame him, that his presence would be enough to stop Michael. That that, that him showing up and apologizing to Michael for having failed him is going to be enough. Uh, And then, you know, the gun is there as a backup in case things go wrong and uh, but but i i believe that he's being genuine he's not trying to trick michael into lowering his guard i think he really thinks that they can patch things up if he just says hey i'm sorry i fucked up this is not your fault i'm sorry i made you kill so many people by by sucking as a doctor uh and then well that fails so he has to resort to violence like like a good american <laughs> jesus which of course is like the the polar opposite of the original because Loomis basically as soon as he sees Michael just unloads the clip like he just wants this guy to be dead and then the remake here Loomis like he views him as like his greatest failure in life and he still thinks he can get through to him so when he's just like Michael stop and he you know the places he's shooting him he's obviously not shooting to kill like shoots him in the shoulder and I think it shoots him in the ass at one point (laughs) and uh, it's he's not going for for the kill here but it, that becomes problematic because he doesn't kill him. So they think they're going to escape. They recycle the line of it was the boogeyman. I believe it was skipping over that. We will save th- thoughts on that for real talk. <laughs> and uh, Michael comes in, pulls Lori back out. He does the old Kona crush skull crush on um, Malcolm McDowell does like the head vice great Kali style and just starts <laughs> squeezing it until blood starts coming out of his nose. I mean, it's a hell of a way to go if you got to go. But but let's see go. So in, in your cut, is it clear that... The, do you see him after this in your cut? No, he squeezes him and drops him, but you don't see him dead or alive one way or the other because the director's cut shows him again, right? No. Okay. <laughs> That's why I was wondering because uh, I, I thought that it was clear that, that he had survived. And, and now I don't know. I mean, you know, we, we can joke about... Uh, Rob Zombie being two steps ahead of everyone and having already planned what the sequel was going to be if there was a sequel. But I I guess it's it's, it's pretty smart to give him uh, a sort of death that could be walked back if necessary. Because you're right. Yeah. I mean, you don't see a body 
and and the way that he falls is not you know he didn't really crush his skull he didn't shoot him in, in the head it, it's just he squeezed his head really hard but that's about it he'll have a splitting headache get him some, get that man some goodies headache powder and uh <laughs> okay so there is a cut of the movie where you see him again there's like three or four cuts of this movie because you know it's warranted that um and there's some cut of it where you see him like crawling after this but Whatever the case, just he's out of the picture. His head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Talk about a bad hangover. Uh, <laughs> and then for the next 10 minutes of the movie, Michael is just chasing Lori through the house. And I, I don't know if this was to subvert the audience's expectation that the movie was over or if Rob Zombie had a bet that even when all his shit was cut out, his movie would still hit an hour and 50 minutes. I don't know what the situation was, but it goes on for quite a bit until they're finally face-to-face. She has Loomis's gun. Uh, I believe he shot Michael four or five times, so, you know, the way a revolver works, it's six bullets. Anyway, she tries to shoot him. It's it It clicks no bullet in that chamber so he like fucking tackles her out of a window and we wake up they're on the ground she grabs the gun tries to shoot it a few more times empty empty he grabs her hand and the last one she's able to fire off shoots him presumably right in the fucking face and blood flies up and we get just blood curdling screams for the last 10 seconds of the movie while the Halloween theme starts to play. That's where uh, Scout Taylor Compton just earned her paycheck. Because, let's be honest, for most of the third act, she'd been sidelined by Loomis and the sheriff and her friends and Michael. But here, it's not just that she spends 10 minutes running around and, and just getting physical, but just this final scene where you can really... she. She really sells the pain and the trauma of uh, of everything that has happened, uh, especially because I think that the the first scene when she's confronted, when she has Michael face to face and uh, he shows her the picture and everything, uh, I don't know that she understands that she's in the presence of her older brother, but we understand as the audience. And I yeah. don't think that there's... Uh, a more poignant moment in the entire franchise, at least the, all the entries that I've seen. Just seeing uh, this this brute trying to connect <laughs> with his lost sister, and all he gets is a knife on the neck. I think <laughs> for for his trouble, it's a uh, it's horrifying. It's a little bit heartbreaking. Uh, I don't know. It just and then of course you know what thirty minutes later or so she puts a bullet in his head, and that's the end of it. Uh, hell of a ride. What a time. What a time to be Rob Zombie. I was going to say, what a time 2007 was in general. We had There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, we had Atonement, <laughs> and then you had Halloween. One of those movies time. was not nominated. Yeah, one of those movies was not nominated for Best Picture. Oh, Jesus. It's something. So, Julio, I ask, are you ready to move along to Real Talk? Let's go. Hey, buddy, just give you a heads up. I got a Taco Deluxe Supreme talking back at me, so I'm going to be a while. So do you mind waiting somewhere else and let me pass this beast in peace? 
you're looking for some kind of action, you better take it on the arches before I'm done dropping this load. Or you gonna be one sorry a-hole. I see. What we got here failure to communicate. You just hold on, Daisy. I've got something for you. Let me introduce myself. I'm Joe Grizzly, bitch. And I'ma cut that mask right off your face. All right, I am recording for Real Talk for Halloween Z. Halloween Zero. Rob Zombie's Halloween. HZ. HZ07. The zombie years. The zombie years. 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. Rob Zombie's Halloween released on, as I mentioned, August 31st, 2007. I went and saw it opening day in the theater. Saw an afternoon showing of it, and it was like four people in there. It was wonderful. (laughs) Wait, did you wait? What? I mean, how did you end up with four people in the... They really... Was that like a bomb? I don't remember it doing badly. Uh, It didn't bomb, but it was also like noon on a Friday in a college town so a lot of people aren't really out at that point like oh, when actually, I saw it. that makes sense yeah well I for all my uh shortcomings in my academic career I was very grateful because by the end of my sophomore year I had figured out how to never have class on Fridays so Fridays was always like my day that I like did stuff or went and saw movies that I wanted to and so this was an example of it. And it was like I had just started working at the for Cinemark at that point. So the idea of free movies was still really fucking cool. So uh, <laughs> I went and spent my Friday afternoon in the movie theater with Rob Zombie and, and friends. So budget of $15 million, which based on the movies we've done and some of the things we've talked about here, budgets always kind of surprise me. And how high that is kind of surprises me. Being that House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects didn't exactly set the world on fire. Um, I mean, they did respectable for what they were, but still. Um, who was this? Dimension Films? The Weinstein Brothers essentially just saying, here's $15 million, make this movie. Paid off, though, because it made uh, over four times that as it came in at $80 million in box office return. But, I mean, makes sense. It's not... It's, a it's not a, movie, yeah. a big question mark of why did this movie make money? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Resurrection was very disappointing in the box office, but that's because it was there was like nothing redeemable about it. Um, on its opening day, Halloween grossed uh, ten million eight hundred ninety six six hundred ten dollars, and immediately surpassed the opening weekend grosses for Halloween Two, Season of the Witch, Return of Michael Myers, Revenge of Michael Myers, Curse of Michael Myers. So it definitely, yeah, it delivered. It gave what they wanted. Whether it was what Rob Zombie wanted or not is a different story, but the studio definitely got from it what they wanted. How about what John Carpenter wanted, Alex? Huh? How about that? I don't really think he cares. My understanding (laughs) is like Rob Zombie (laughs) called him and was like, hey, I'm doing this movie. And John Carpenter was, I think he told him to make it your own movie. Make it your own. 
Uh, he has since like said he didn't care for it, but I mean, just please stop calling me. Yeah, <laughs> Rob, don't ever call this number again. Is what he told him. <laughs> yeah, at that point, John Carpenter. You know, this was almost fifteen years ago, and he. I don't think he really cared. He's like, okay, I'm going to continue to sleep on my massive pile of money over here. We're all good. <laughs> Man, I always walk away from this movie less sure of how I feel about it. You love it. You hate it. It's that ex-girlfriend you can't let go of. When I first saw it, the first time I saw it, the time, the aforementioned Friday afternoon in the movie theater, I remember walking out because I was prepared for the worst. Because the word going in was that it was not good. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the script leaked, and then there was a working cut of the movie that leaked online, like um, a few, maybe two weeks before it was released. And so, Was that the one where you couldn't really see the claws in uh, Michael Myers' hands? <laughs> Kindred spirits, man, because that's what I was going to liken it to. If you said you, <laughs> if you had said, I don't know what you mean, I was going to be like, you remember how Wolverine was leaked you know, a few weeks before it came out? So... <laughs> Way ahead of me on that one. So the word going in was that it was not particularly good. And also, even at 20 years old, I thought the tagline, Evil Has a Destiny, was pretty fucking lame. And uh, <laughs> Also, I'm imagining, by now, you're, you're way into your your Halloween fandom. Oh, yeah. I think Halloween has been my favorite movie probably since I was 17 or 18, maybe. So I was... Um, Definitely locked in, but you know, like I said, going in, the word was kind of mixed to be uh, to put a positive spin on it. At the same time, I was only twenty, so my you know my barometer and what I would let fly and things that didn't resonate with me as much as they do now, being older. Like you and I have talked about that a bunch on here, watching things when you're younger and then rewatching. I'm like, oh my god, this is so fucked up. Um, so that really like has varied. So when I first saw it, I was like, hey, that wasn't that bad. I didn't love it. And then there were times I rewatched it and I loved it. And there were times that I rewatched it and I hated it. And then there was today where I was just kind of like, what is this? And just <laughs> trying to kind of f- figure it all out. Um, so before we launch into it, let's uh, since it is 26%, that means there's at least a few critics out there who enjoyed it. I can just imagine Rob Zombie going, like, Alex, please stop calling me. <laughs> <laughs> You're the Rob Zombie to his to his John Carpenter. Alex, don't um, ever call this number again. Uh, all right. So more Run Tomatoes quotes. This time I got three positives. Uh, we got Matthew Lucas from From the Front Row, who says, At a time when most horror remakes seem aimed at a teen market, Zombie's vision was decidedly more hardcore and uncompromising. Definitely more hardcore. Yeah, I was going to say, no disagreement there. Uh, Kyle Smith from the New York Post says, The Batman begins of slasher movies and one of the more frightening stabathons of recent years. Would you say it's The Batman begins of slasher movies? I, I would not, because I don't know there is one. I would like to see a Christopher Nolan Halloween. Just going back and forth in time. Uh, Haddonfield's not a big enough city. That's the yeah, Haddonfield would have to be reimagined as like this fucking New York City size metropolitan. Uh, Tom Hardy would play uh, Michael Myers. Oh, he's too short. Um, CGI man. <laughs> yes, because if there's one thing Christopher Nolan is known for is CGI. No, yeah, yeah, that could work. And then you have Marion Cotillard playing uh, Laurie. 
Okay. <laughs> so we're we're really changing the time. <laughs> Halloween, the college years. <laughs> uh, and then Bob Strauss from Los Angeles Daily News says Halloween has everything you could want in an updated slasher movie, as long as you're not that homicidally slavish purist. Are you a homicidally slavish purist or a purist of any sort, Alex? I don't think so. I also I don't think so either. But I mean, obviously, my attachment to the I, I don't think I am either. But my attachment to the original Halloween is minimal, and certainly nothing compared to yours. So really, uh, how I experience Rob Zombie's Halloween changes is very, very different from how you experience it. As will be referenced several times through our Haddonfield Nights uh, saga here, our six-part series, friend of the podcast, uh, Reed, had lent me a, a book. It's a thick son of a bitch, but I was actually I got through a good chunk of it. Um, called Taking Shape, Developing Halloween from Script to Scream. This came out, this was a book that was released, uh, put together by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins, and was released shortly after the 2018 sequel that we'll be covering in the future was released. And it um, is like an anthological coverage of each Halloween movie, what went into making them, you know, behind the scenes. It also breaks down uh, the differences in, you know, the original script, what made it to screen, that type of thing. And reading uh, about the Rob Zombie Halloween on this, it definitely, it, several takeaways from it. I'm sure you wouldn't be shocked to find out that the studio had to rein him in on a lot of things that were a bit too out there. Uh, uh, I'm a little disappointed that they did, actually. Some of the stuff I read, I was, like, bummed that I read it. I was like, what the fuck? Like, just thinking so, thinking that someone wanted to put something like that on camera or, like, on a movie. Uh, I don't want to go too deep into it because it's just shit not worth covering. But, like, for example, he was in Rob Zombie's original um, – treatment of halloween uh after he killed his sister he was going to penetrate her with a baseball bat and it's just <laughs> brother that crosses a line between like creative horror writing and like you need to talk to somebody uh, <laughs> uh, oh god so there's you that know you're in trouble when uh when the weinstein brothers are the ones that are telling you you need to tone it down <laughs> you need to rein it in so there's that but also um when this was originally going to happen, it was going to be Halloween nine. And on like the Halloween website, there was a poll that was like, it gave you different options of like, what do you want to see in the new Halloween? Because the reaction to resurrection was so bad. It was uh, essentially the, the amazing Spider-Man two of the Halloween <laughs> franchise. And that it was so terrible. They figured we're going to have to completely reboot this somehow. Um, and at this we're point, have to get rid of Andrew Garfield. Yeah, at this point, you know everything except the first one has been retconned. But at that point in time, they basically did like a poll and was like, "Hey, if we did this, would you want to see something that focused more on Laurie and uh, Michael, or would you like to see something like Season of the Witch, where it has nothing to do with Michael? It's just more of like a, you know, a." Twilight Zone saga or would you like us to add some new character from the Myers family and all these things and eventually there were three scripts that were done or in production of being done to make a new movie when um, I guess Dimension or whoever owned the rights to at the time was just like fuck it 
we'll just try something different. And then Rob Zombie came and pitched the idea of he wanted to do two movies. If you couldn't tell by this movie that he really actually just wanted to make two movies where he wanted the first one, the entirety of the first one to be him from being a kid to like when he breaks out of Smith's Grove and then the second one being, um, I guess, a retelling of what he saw the original. And okay, of course, I thought you were going to say that he wanted to make this movie and Halloween 2. And I was like, no, I could not tell that <laughs> from watching this movie. Um, yeah, I haven't. I don't know if I'm going to just because I, I don't care for that movie at all. But there is a chapter on Halloween 2 and, you know, why it got made. Just looking at it here, uh, it did nowhere near the uh, box office that this one did. But his original idea was prequel and then a retelling and they were like nope you get one movie so he tried to obviously truncate all that and put it into one whether it works is obviously uh up for debate but yeah i just i don't know and he talked about all the meddling that was involved with it and um you may be surprised to hear this. The the rape escape, the scene with the, the orderlies raping that girl, that was like in the original one that went to test screenings. And that scene tested very poorly. Uh, you don't say. I still, I've never seen it. I've just read about it and uh, listened to people discuss it. Julio and the uh, YouTube uh, piece focus on it. Jesus, I can't speak. But yeah, I mean, I've seen his films don't particularly... Uh, this one maybe more than any of them paint women in a bit more positive light because Laurie's smart in a certain aspect, but then for the most part, uh, his reliance on women being degraded is kind of off-putting, and especially based on you just like explaining to me what the scene is, it's like uh, he could have just killed those orderlies for like coming into his room and fucking with them. There was no reason to add this idea of like rape to the equation. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the easiest thing for me to say and say it truthfully is just to go, yeah, it's not for me, you know, uh, and uh, but it's there because I guess to some people it's an improvement over it not being there. Uh, and the nicest thing I can say about it is that it's consistent, like I said in Contrarian's Corner, is consistent with his worldview, the, the, with the world that he's painting, in which, uh, you know, it's not just that uh, Michael Myers's stepfather is a piece of shit and that the bully that, that he murders is a piece of shit. It's just that, by and large, most of the world is filled with horrible people. Uh, but even saying that, do you really need to order orderlies dragging a patient and really just graphically abusing her. And, you know, it, I, I think that this is the part where I am more likely to go. Why? Yeah. <laughs> the, there's, there's a very specific button that you want to push. And I don't know. That it needs to be pushed to accomplish what this movie tries to accomplish. Unless, uh, it's just about the excess of it all. Uh, in in that case, well, yeah, of course. Uh, in, in that case, I'm actually surprised that he doesn't go even further. Uh, but it's not. I don't get anything out of watching it other than uh, just the desire to never watch it again. <laughs> yeah, and that I can understand that. And um, interestingly enough, uh, as we 
discovered kind of getting into this, the theatrical cut of Rob Zombie's Halloween is very hard to come by. Um, as far as online streaming services go, the only one I could find it on was through YouTube, and it's like 13 bucks. which, of course, if you've ever bought a movie on YouTube, that's very high to rent or watch. Uh, and as far as physical media goes, it's even more difficult to come by. I got the I, I own the theatrical cut on DVD that I was gifted for Christmas the year it came out, and I remember that being the only time that was available. They released the theatrical and the director's cut, but basically, the way history has shifted is the director's cut is the one that everyone knows, and uh, so that's the one like in the Halloween box set, and it's the one that you know if you go on Amazon right now you're gonna buy. And um, it's the one that's in most circulation on streaming sites, which is just a really weird thing. Um, How pissed do you think Bill mostly is about this? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So it's like I'm used to the theatrical one, so I always perk up. I'm like, hey, Bill Mosley's here. But, you know, he doesn't he doesn't get his fucking royalties. That's what happened. I just figured it out. His <laughs> his royalty fees were too high. Like, man, if we air this shit on Showtime, Mosley's going to get paid bank. <laughs> I think it'll be easier to kind of articulate some of the things I don't really like about this movie once we cover the original in our next episode. Um, but Rob Zombie is an interesting tale in that he is a guy who had, you know, a successful music career and was always kind of a, a go-to for opinions on horror movies and things of that nature. And his debut film, his rookie film was, just given a blank check by universal to pretty much just make what he wanted to. And, you know, short of, I'm sure some things had to be cut out of that house of a thousand corpses is, you know, not typically what you see in a director's debut financed by a massive movie studio. So he obviously brings something to the table that people are interested in. And, uh, up to a certain point will pay to see. I think his flame kind of burned out as far as at a high level. Oh, I don't think his flame burned out at a high level after his second Halloween came out. Cause that kind of tanked. And since then he's just made things that are extremely limited release or in some cases direct to video, but it's telling that he had the two, you know, the uh, devil's rejects and house of a thousand corpses that did pretty well and were backed by big studios. And then he was handed the reins to the Halloween franchise when they were seemingly looking to, um, revamp it. And from an artistic standpoint, I think he has an eye for some aspects of the horror genre. And I think the main thing that I can compliment him on is that he is steadfast in what he wants to present. Yeah. And he has a vision of what he wants to be as a filmmaker and what he wants his films to be. That all being said, I think it's a bit too extreme for something like this. I guess if they're trying to relaunch it as uh, you know, the new in your face, Michael, but sticking with the, you know, the constants of the Halloween franchise, but also trying to interject these extremely disturbing and dark Rob zombie aspects to it. I don't feel it, it overall works. I feel there are parts of it that work, but then when you get the final product and it's, Hey, here you go. It's like, Ooh, this seems really disjointed in some areas. Well, I think that it works in the sense of it being a Rob zombie movie and maybe 
it just doesn't work or it doesn't work all the way in the sense of being a Halloween movie. Uh, if you, uh, if the Halloween franchise didn't exist and this movie was all the Halloween you, you knew, all the, the Halloween that the world knew, it was just Rob Zombie came up with Michael Myers and the lore and everything and it came out, uh, then all you would know is that it's a Rob Zombie movie and maybe it would be his most, uh, like out of all his movies, the one that makes the most sense. <laughs> and, you know, it wouldn't be seen as, as kind of a, a missed opportunity. It would be seen as like, wow, it's maybe, it might be like the high point of his career, maybe next to Devil's Rejects, right under Devil's Rejects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I think that it's uh, maybe what, what ultimately it boils down to is, do you want your Halloween to be a Rob Zombie Halloween. And when you commit your franchise to that vision that is very, uh, you know, maybe narrow, you know, like the target audience for a Rob Zombie movie is much more limited than your average horror franchise and certainly your your average Halloween movie, I would imagine. So you bring him in and he makes a Rob Zombie movie and you can try to sort of mainstream it and, and polish the rough edges, but in the end, it's still a Rob Zombie movie. So uh, it becomes, uh, as somebody who has very little investment in Halloween as a franchise, I I don't have a problem with how different it is from the rest of the Halloween movies. Uh, the ones I like, the ones I don't like, the ones I don't care about. Uh, in the end, it's just like I said, you know, it's just, I can look at it and be like, it's a Rob Zombie movie, therefore, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's a big part of it. Now, there are things that this movie attempts to do that could be seen as positives or negatives, regardless of who's behind the camera. You know, like if, if this was like uh, Steven Soderbergh's Halloween, for example, <laughs> <laughs> and but it, it, it and it still dealt with, uh, you know, half of it was devoted to Michael Myers as a child. Uh, how how would you react because you know, I personally, I don't have a problem with backstory, and we've had talks about this throughout the years, uh, and we'll we'll go on about it next episode too when we talk about the original Halloween. But I, I actually prefer the a Michael Myers that has a backstory, uh, maybe because that's that was how I first experienced it. But seeing him as a as a kid that was already. A troubled kid and it, just seeing him kind of for all the things that I don't like about the movie I think that it kind of has a steady hand on depicting how this little kid just basically goes off the deep end and uh, and how his family and his his doctor and institution that's supposed to be helping him absolutely fails partly maybe because of ineptitude or also just because Sometimes you just don't have the answers. It, I, I find that whole aspect of it compelling. Um, I think I've been saying this a lot lately in our episodes, or, or at least whenever we talk about this sort of a movie. But to me, when it becomes more of a traditional slasher, I, I, I'm just not, I don't care that much. But that first half, when it's just uh, where you can kind of feel the the anguish of not knowing what to do with a kid that's going through something like this. What do you do with a kid that's, you know, killing animals and killing a classmate and just 
goes on, graduates to murdering his stepfather and his sister and, uh, and shuts down. You know, I, that part to me is fascinating. Is that what people come to a Halloween movie for? I guess not. <laughs> I don't know how, how I know you don't like it and how, I don't know how, uh, how general, like how, how widespread that opinion is. Like, do people not like the Hall- the Rob Zombie Halloween because of the backstory? Is that is that a big thing? Uh, I mean, I've talked to some people. Uh, I think that's part of me and Reed's thing of why we love the original so much, just in the sense of, and like you said, I don't want to go too deep, too deep into that because we're going to have a whole episode on that, just the idea of like, the shape has no story. That being said, I've kind of, lightened or uh, softened on that stance a little bit, especially with this rewatching because viewing this movie, we're, we're just talking this movie cover to cover. Cause I was just going into it of like, all right, judge this. Well, I'm going to judge each of these movies on their own merit as just standalone movies. And then we'll talk about the franchise when we get to the end of it. Mm-hmm. Just watching this, the first half of this movie is almost completely more entertaining than the second half or more engaging. Entertaining is a very strong word. Uh, for yeah. the subject matter that we're dealing with. Um, it's a more fascinating portion of it. I think, if this makes any sense, I think the acting is better in the second half, but the story is better in the first half. Are you talking about, uh, like, what acting are you comparing? Like, uh, McDowell versus older McDowell? <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm versus Malcolm. Um, <laughs> I mean, overall. So... Like Sherry Moon versus uh, Scout. Okay, so like in the second half, I think that uh, obviously Malcolm McDowell is great overall. We'll get to him in just a moment. But Brad Dourif, um, I think Daniel Harris is really good. And I think Scout has kind of her moments. And then like I mentioned, uh, the Strode parents, uh, Dee Wallace and Pat Skipper, I think are kind of the unsung heroes of the second half because they bring like we talked about in Contrarian's Corner, they bring this calming sense of normalcy to the movie that I almost, just based on all the Rob Zombie movies I've seen, I feel like he did that unknowingly because he has no interest in adding like anything calming to his movies. I think that was just almost like a happy accident. So I think, while I think the the acting, there's more like standouts in the second portion. Um, I mean, William Forsythe is is good but everything he says is fucking horrifying and like just really off-putting his delivery is one note too i mean it's just he's just yelling the whole time what's the movie where al pacino just got a great ass uh yeah heat there you go (laughs) this is william fourth size heat but i think jesus (laughs) the uh i think forsyth and mcdowell pacino and de niro (laughs) god so it's the it's the heat poster, but with Malcolm McDowell, William Forsythe, and then um oh shit. Clint Howard in the middle in the Val Kilmer position. Dude, how did we not mention that in Contrarian's Corner? That was that was a scene for the ages. We have Clint Howard, uh Udo Kier, and Malcolm McDowell. Because that's not the in the theatrical version. That that didn't make the cut for the theatrical version. That what? was uh, yeah. That's I was curious if you were going to bring it up because I, I read about that scene being in there and that was my exact reaction. I was like, that's just like a a cornucopia of over-the-top talent in one scene. But apparently during the test screenings, they just said like that side plot was boring and they didn't want to see like any of it. It's like one scene. 
Well, there was way more of it in like one of the original working cuts of like um, uh, uh, Udo Kiri uh, and Clint Howard, like basically saying that, you know, he's fine. We can just transfer him to a lower uh, security facility. And Malcolm McDowell with his, I think they're in one scene. He had dreadlocks. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, just saying they were fucking crazy. But yeah, like in the theatrical cut, there's one shot of Udo Kiri. Like, come on. You, you got to be able to do more than that. Uh, listening to Rob Zombie on a uh, Rogan's podcast talk about this, and that was I went back and re-listened to it. We're kind of going back to what we were saying about him as a as an artist, quote unquote, or a filmmaker. I'm curious your thoughts on this because you you've obviously gotten way more into screenwriting than I have. Um, what he said about test screenings and dealing with studios was really fascinating to me on one hand i'm like who the fuck are you to feel this way but at the same time i think you have to have your convictions when you are an artist because he said when he would talk to the weinsteins or you know people from the studio uh or he said he hates doing test screenings um because he said it's easy to watch a movie with a crowd and see how the crowd's feeling but he said there's no point in someone like some random Joe off the street afterwards telling you what's wrong with your movie. Um, but what he said, I thought was interesting with the studio is they would tell him what parts of the movie sucked, but then they would tell him how to fix it. And he said, he doesn't need that. The analogy he made with Joe Rogan is if someone told you that joke's not funny, this is how it could be funny. Mm-hmm. He basically said he feels as you know an artist that, if what he's doing isn't working, it's his job to figure out how to fix it, not to be told how to fix it. Is that something you've ever heard of, or is that a sentiment yeah. you agree with? Well, I, I imagine that there's very different types of screenings and executives that that handle these screenings and these notes, uh, because I've heard of people that welcome them as part of the process, that think that it's just, it's just how it is, right? You make a movie, you've spent months making this movie probably maybe even years developing it so there comes a point where you've kind of tunnel visioned yourself and you need fresh eyes and those eyes should be from the people that are actually going to pay to watch this movie so uh so you get people volunteers i guess you know and you and you get the reactions and you use that to fine tune see what's working see what isn't working and, and you know it's part of the process um i can see how somebody like Rob Zombie, uh, you know, people, filmmakers that lean more towards like the the auteur version of filmmaking uh, are like, well, it's my movie, you know, and if they don't like it, I'm not going to change it so they like it more. In the end, what's important is that it's my movie. Uh, Obviously, filmmaking is a business, so ideally you find the middle ground where you don't sacrifice what's special about this filmmaker and and their identity for the sake of commerce, but also you kind of figure out a way for the movie to, to make money. Uh, that said, how you run these things, I imagine just changes there. Uh, I, I remember, I think it was Woody Allen who was complaining about test screenings. And he was just basically saying the studio is telling people is letting people who aren't filmmakers, uh, tell them how to fix a movie. And it's like, that's mm-hmm. not their job. That's not what they do. 
and and I can see value in that, right? But at the same time, if what you get is a card that says, well, this is a comedy, and for the first 30 minutes, nobody was laughing, fix it. Okay, well, that to me makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Uh, unless, you know, then Rob Zombie or whoever is the filmmaker comes at you and he's like, well, they're not supposed to laugh for 30 minutes. That's that's how I want it to be. And then the studio comes back and says, okay, but we want them to laugh because otherwise they're going to walk out. It, it, you know, I don't know. I, I imagine there's just many different approaches. I, I think that it's a tool that can be overused, that it can be used badly, or it can be used to make a movie better. I, uh, it doesn't surprise me that Rob Zombie is not a fan of it because, as we've been saying, he has he seems to have a very specific vision and... Well, that's your problem if you're not on board. And at this point, I, you know, unless it's your first Rob Zombie movie ever and you've never heard of him, uh, it's kind of on you if you go watch one of his movies and you and you're repulsed or or turned <laughs> off, surprised, or, you know, caught by surprise. Yeah, yeah. It's um, again, it was just it was kind of funny listening to him talk like that because it's to me he's st- you're just Rob Zombie. Like that's the attitude I have, but at the same time, I, honestly, as we've talked about in some of our episodes about the current state of affairs with the film industry, it'd probably be better if some people had that same attitude. I'm not saying everyone should have uh, or should make the same movies as Rob Zombie, but I think a lot of people should be more steadfast in what they want. Obviously, Rob Zombie is not uh, should not be left to his own devices, based on like I said, reading <laughs> some of his original ideas for this movie, but. Um, but how does he feel about, I mean, we know how Halloween fans may feel and we know how the studio may feel, but I, I just, when he was talking about these movies, was he satisfied with, with, at least with the first Halloween? Was he like, yeah, I set out to make this movie and it came out exactly like I expected it would. And I'm happy with it. And I'm proud of it. Of the film, Rob Zombie said. The mystique of the original Halloween has been trampled and flushed down the toilet by seven shitty sequels that followed Carpenter's movie. Michael Myers had no mystique left. It was just a stuntman getting beat up by Busta Rhymes. I felt Jesus. that giving I felt that giving him a backstory and presenting him in a new way was a very much more legitimate approach. So that's a, a quote I have from him. I I do know he was not overly thrilled about a lot of the you know the cuts they made. That's why I think he stands by the movie you watched. I think that's the one that, um, if I understood correctly with some of the things I read, that had to do with him conceding to make cuts for the theatrical version was that the director's cut would be the way more widely available one on home video. And so, you know, I guess whatever that comes through and based on what you've told me, there's really not too much different. sounds like there's a couple added scenes. Neither of them have the ending. I've seen the ending on YouTube where the, the cops shoot Michael, they Mm -hmm. show up and, but I think he, I think he likes Halloween two more. If I, if I understand his tone correctly, probably because that's the one they gave him more creative freedom on. Cause the first one made so much money and then he made that and it made half of what the first one made. Um, you know, you see the things that he, we talked about this a couple years ago when we recorded this, you see things like Lords of Salem where that's pretty much him unhinged. And it's like, all right, brother, you clearly have like a skill. It's just all about siphoning that and finding the right thing. You know, it's like, um, 
you know, some shitty local restaurant that has like their appetizer sampler. It's like, well, these mozzarella sticks are shit and these potato skins suck, but god damn, these wings are incredible. Let's figure out how to make it more like these wings. And I think <laughs> that is Rob Zombie. And I do think, I have said this before, on the podcast, in person, and probably via text, every type of media. Face. To his face. Devil's Rejects is lightning in a bottle. That movie is... The best movie he will ever make. I I hate to say that because he, you know, I, but I, I don't think he's going to be making, you know, he's not going to be making There Will Be Blood or The Master or anything like that anytime soon. And I think Devil's Rejects kind of siphons all of the things we're talking about of like visionary direction with also like hyper violence and uh, repulsive characters and still some really dark comedy and his... Um, almost like Cameron-esque ability to make a soundtrack of... Things that sometimes might you might not think will work in this particular scenario, and then sometimes you think these things work perfectly in this scenario. I don't think it's as on well of a display in this particular movie, but his other movies, his ability for uh, soundtracking is pretty fascinating. I was really missing uh, Freebird from that final sequence when uh, I had, when Laurie shoots Michael. When I had devil's rejects on the other morning in the morning that's that's what a kind of mood i was in. i woke up was like i'm gonna watch the devil's rejects um my sister lillian came in at the end and like the opening strum of freebird hit and she just goes ugh and like walked out of the room (laughs) (laughs) but anyway probably the best part of that movie i wonder and listeners feel free to reach out with the answer to this question but uh because i can't think off the top of my head of a filmmaker that uh that kind of like pulls himself or herself out of the nosedive. Uh, but not that Rob Zombie's a nosedive, but I can see where you're coming from. I, I understand what you're saying, right? It's like, did he peak with Devil's Rejects? Because it seems like from Devil's Rejects on, you know, your Halloween, Halloween 2, uh, the other one that I can never remember, and then whatever he's done since, it just keeps the direction that his career and his sensibilities have gone on would indicate that he has no interest in coming back to the sort of coherent filmmaking that he had early on. Uh, he has no interest in making Regents, another movie that's going to make House of a Thousand Corpses uh, would be called coherent. But anyway, uh, but I'm sure in the history of filmmaking, of cinema, uh, there there have to be filmmakers that that go through that, right? They they have a promising start and then they kind of lose pretty much ninety percent of the mainstream audience. Because their projects become more and more uh, uh, just insulary, I guess. And uh, but then at some point they kind of have a rebirth because they they just I don't know somehow they find a different avenue, a different way of expressing themselves, and then they're hot again, you know, because the talent is still there. It's just that they they decide to use it in a more uh, you know again mainstream way. And so I wouldn't count him out. I I don't think the odds are good seeing as how he uh, he seems like somebody that's very set in his ways and set in the path that he's been in for so many years now. But, I mean, you never know. Maybe all he needs is that one Marvel movie and, and then he's back and everybody's good graces. Speaking of that, I have his Wikipedia pulled up right now. Did you know he has a voice cameo in both Guardians of the Galaxy movie? Uh, no. I don't think he specifically says, hey, it's me, Rob Zombie from the Halloween franchise. But He just uh, growls. It's such a backwards way. And he acknowledges this. He calls this out in the interviews I've watched and read with him about how 
he basically learned the industry in reverse because he's like, no one's, <laughs> he says, uh, no one's first movie they ever make should be something that's just financed by Universal Studios and lets you do whatever you want. He's like, that's a very bad recipe for like the rest of your career in terms of like, it does not set realistic expectations of what making films is. So at least he's honest about it. And again, listeners, it feels like we're focusing pretty heavily on Rob Zombie here. It's because that's really the he's not going to reappear in the rest of this uh, saga. And it's really <laughs> one of the goodbye. more. Just like we said goodbye to Sherry Moon early on in the movie. Yes. Saying we, goodbye to Rob Zombie early on in uh, Haddonfield Nights. We uh, we played taps as Sherry Moon left. and No, but I think there is, there's so much discourse about Rob Zombie as a, a movie, uh, as a director, as a writer, and all these things. And it, it sparks a lot of vitriol. A lot of people like think he's awful and you know like i said there are things about his filmmaking style that are incredibly off-putting a big one is it really seems that he in i don't know enjoys or it has to include scenes in his movies where women are being demeaned in some kind of way uh, even if it's by other women like devil's rejects has that torture scene with sherry moon and she's like torturing these yeah. other two women and um so i don't know i'm not here to analyze him psychologically i'm here to talk about his his halloween but it's still thankfully for me and thankfully for the cut that i know it doesn't include that scene that we've talked about so that helps me enjoy it a bit more the fact that i know it's out there is obviously very off-putting but the version i like is not tainted by that or the version that i'm used to i should say So, so so how do you feel well i don't know if you want to get into this but you know i was to me the second big thing uh, at least for someone on my level of connection to the franchise, uh, before uh, New Laurie would be New Loomis. Is that how you feel too? Like that the, the, the next big one thing is the, the backstory that he focused on, Rob Zombie did, uh, and then then next to me would be Malcolm McDowell's characterization of Doctor Loomis. Do you think yes. that that would be the next big kind of point of contention? I guess I haven't talked to enough people about it being contention because even people that don't like this movie, again, to go back to, uh, and we'll be, I'll be referencing or will be referencing him several times, friend of the podcast, Reed, because he's as attached to the Halloween franchise as myself. Um, I, I know he does not care for this movie, but I know that we've talked about Malcolm McDowell's performance in it and it being one of the more admirable parts of the movie. I, I, I don't know if like diehards object to his portrayal of it. I think what he does definitely is paints their relationship in a different light. Cause you know, Donald Pleasance just talks about like, I realized at one point I was never going to get through to him. And at that point I made it my life's mission to make sure that he never got out. I made <laughs> sure that he, you know, he was never going to go anywhere. Uh, and he becomes obsessed with him, but in a different way than, um, uh, Malcolm McDowell is Malcolm McDowell is just obsessed with him like the girl that got away I think was what you said in the first portion <laughs> and Loomis real Loomis is just always that I have to make sure he can never get out into society again and if he does I have to be the one to kill him whereas Malcolm McDowell is just he still thinks he's going to fix him which I honestly think that is an underrated wrinkle that was added to it I think that's a really interesting turn and too. like we talked about this the scene where he's just like telling Michael all this shit. And he has that line about like, you've become the closest thing to a best friend that I have. 
just because, you know, all the time I've spent with you and with Michael just sitting there staring back at him with just like this emotionless face. I think Malcolm McDowell, when he's able to do his own thing in this is fucking great. And I think it it's one of the more, upon this rewatching of it, my umpteenth rewatching is one of the more interesting and enjoyable parts of it. When it sucks is, and I don't know, I tried to find this if I could, and like I read in that book, I read a whole chapter on this movie. The shoehorning in of recreations of scenes from the original and uh, reciting of dialogue from the original is easily to me the worst part of this movie and especially when so Malcolm McDowell when he says I think I know whose grave that is to me it seems like Rob Zombie did an impression of Donald Pleasance (laughs) to him and told him to go do that Uh, because I totally believe the thing I read that Malcolm McDowell never seen this movie and then I don't get me started on when they do the the was that the boogeyman as a matter of fact I do believe it was i hate that part in this movie number one because Laurie Strode Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't ask was that the boogeyman she's exasperated and and claims that was the boogeyman and then Donald Pleasance hits her with the as a matter of fact dramatic pause it was and then just kind of walks off screen this it's almost played for fucking laughs (laughs) and it oh yeah especially upon the rewatching tonight it drove me fucking insane and, I think um, it works a little better earlier when uh, when he, when he first grabs Lori and he just goes, "Come with me if you want to live." <laughs> oh God! See that you would have no choice but to respect something like that if, he, <laughs> if that happened. But yeah, so back to the original point: anything that's not them trying to make him Donald Pleasance is great. And like I said, uh, or like you said, excuse me. Seeing, especially in the first act of the movie, his confidence wither away, it's almost something that is too interesting and too well-performed to be in a movie like this. Yes, especially because it's crazy. This is like the craziness of the two Rob Zombie movies because I think that he does so much with uh, with the Loomis character that is kind of a letdown the way it ends until you become aware of him surviving. And then when you see uh, how his character changes in Halloween two, then suddenly it becomes, then it's okay, you know, because it's not that this really interesting story ends with Michael Myers, just killing him. (laughs) You know, I I think that that's kind of a letdown after you you grab the most interesting part of the story. And then, you kind of toss it aside so that you can have a 10 minute long chase scene between Michael and Lori. Uh, the only way that that gets redeemed is when it turns out that no, the the story between McDowell and Michael Myers is not over because in Halloween two, Michael McDowell turns out that, you know, he survived and, and now he's changed wildly <laughs> uh, when it comes to Michael Myers. And at least, you know, I mean, that that's a completely different discussion. The, Dr. Loomis character in Halloween 2. But if nothing else, the fact that he survives in that movie makes the way that his character ends in this one sting a little less. Uh, But as it is, as a standalone, uh, it's just so weird that there's so much buildup, so much 
put in there and the resolution is just kind of you know it, it kind of goes nowhere uh that that's i don't know that's i felt that that's probably the biggest failing in the movie aside of how i feel about uh rob zombie's taste and aesthetic and all that stuff but just from a plot uh angle from a thematic angle i guess that's to me that that's where it drops the ball the most and it might be because i really don't care about lori uh if i don't know if you want to move on to to new lori and how it compares or, or or how you how you like it yeah so that's a that's a good segue so malcolm mcdowell peace love love you in this man you you brought honor to the game in this movie <laughs> scout taylor compton new lori who, by the way, as I texted Julio and doing my research, uh, Emma Stone auditioned for the role of Laurie Stroud. God, you know, to think that there could have been a movie where Laurie Stroud or uh, Emma Stone was Laurie Stroud directed by Rob Zombie would be quite the footnote to have now. But that means whatever that, the uh, case. Scout Taylor Compton gets a part in The Rocker. Yes. And then she's in The Help. Is it Eddie that calls it Blah Blah Bland? So. Uh, we all do. I want to say it might have actually originated with a legendary uh, listener of the podcast, John Golson. He might have started okay. it. Well, God God bless, because that, that's immediately what I think of every time that movie comes up. But anyway, Emma Stone, not cast. Uh, Rob Zombie with a real eye for talent. Um, <laughs> so Lori is unremarkable in Halloween it's not meant to beat you over the head with how unremarkable she is. She's just a really sweet virginly girl that has these other two friends that are a bit more wild than her. And Rob Zombie's Halloween, Lori is meant to be or portrayed as unremarkable under current auspices. So she still has to be fashionable and, you know, be somewhat flirtatious and, uh, she just has to be right underneath underneath the cusp of what her friends are. And it seems like too much is done in this movie to put her on like a pedestal right below them. Mm-hmm. And which is not really done in the first one or the original, I should say. Part of but the is that, that make- a bad thing as far as how it affects her how it affects her being, I guess, you know, what, the protagonist of the second half of the story? So what I will say in in uh, response to that is if this was a movie that stood alone, no. But since this is a movie called Halloween, based on the original <laughs> Halloween, and specifically in the second half, they are so insistent on making constant direct allusions and homages to the original, I can't help but compare it to that. And so for that reason, the way Laurie is portrayed in this doesn't particularly work for me. That's not to say that Scout Taylor Compton is not good. I think, um, I think unfortunately, the scenes where all three of those girls are on screen at the same time, just because of how polished she is, Daniel Harris just kind of steals the thunder from the other two. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. So I think that kind of hurts it. And then by the end, when... Lori's just kind of by herself. Um, it it doesn't kind of work the same way. Like I don't. I I think there's so much that's understated about the fact that you know 
Jamie Lee Curtis was Lori and but when no one knew her so like in that movie you don't know that she's this really super talented actress and she's so she's able to like captivate you and sur- swoop you in and you know suck in your attention and then this one just like we said one of the side characters is the most enchanting you know actor on the screen at the the point in time that we're talking about so it's it's all these things working against Scout Taylor Compton it just makes Lori fall kind of flat. I think they they try to redeem the Lori character in the end when she fucking shoots him in the face, which again, I think that ending is awesome. I remember that was like my main thing I was complimentary about when the movie was over. It was like, holy shit, she killed him. She shot him in the face. <laughs> and um but of course they, you know, they they did away with that. But I feel the movie kind of builds her up to fail. And so and by doing things like we we're talking about with Loomis being so much more, you know, a huge part of it, uh, you know, not this like kind of just side character just being like this being driving force through it. And I don't know. It's she's good. And uh, the introduction of her parents, I think, hurts her, too, because you don't really meet Laurie's parents in the original. And because, like we mentioned, the actors that play her parents in this are so good and bring this air of light to the movie that is not expected in something like this. I think that even takes some of the sheen away from her. So I think while her performance is fine, it just, there's all these parts that set that character up to fail. Yeah, I I think so. I think that, um, you know, I'll, I'll hold off on my thoughts on original recipe, Lori until next episode, because really I need to rewatch that movie and just really see how I feel about it. Uh, once I go in with tempered expectations, but uh, with this Lori, I think that yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you say. I, I I think if I were to add something, it's just that I felt this might be just a, a byproduct of me knowing that Lori is an iconic character played by an iconic actress. So I felt like the movie was trying was working overtime to try to sell me how cool this Lori is, uh, which of course is something you don't feel in. The original, because the original didn't have all that baggage. <laughs> it was just, yeah. the original was just happening. But in this one, uh, especially because you don't meet her until halfway through the movie. So they have very little time to set her up. Uh, I was just like, I, I felt uh, kind of this assault of just the movie going like, isn't she cool? Can you tell that this is, <laughs> this is a lorry for the 2000s and look you know she can she can talk dirty and she's just she can keep up with her friends and uh she's just so uh i don't know you know it's a, she's a tryhard but not yeah. not in the not in that the character is a tryhard it's just that the the, the movie is making the movie not even the performance I, I believe that scout taylor compton is just doing what was asked of her but it's just you know, you have to sell this Lori because it's it's Lori, and and we need to kind of she's the anchor of the of the second half of the movie, and that it, it doesn't work because she really by the time that the movie's over, like it's really cool that she shoots Michael in the head, but I can't tell you what it means to her other than well, that's horrible, but it would have been horrible for anybody, right? That there's no like emotional anything attached to it other than she just went through this horrible experience this violent experience and she just shot i don't even know if she knows that she's shooting her older brother yeah in uh, in the face and and even if she does know that i don't know what that means to her uh, no. i know exactly what it means to to loomis when michael attacks him i know what it means to loomis when when he finds 
Michael, when he sees what Michael has been doing, that that's what the movie has been working on. So what do I know about Scout? That she has two friends that are more promiscuous than she is. Uh, that I don't know. I think that's that's about all I know. And that she babysits. You know, uh, it's never established. Uh, there's nothing else that's established. You know, she she spends most of her scenes. She's talking to these kids, and and yeah, the kids, uh, the, the little boy is like a good performer, but they're talking about boogeyman and just pretty generic uh, horror movie stuff. Uh, so, I I have zero investment when the movie decides to devote the last ten minutes of its climax to to just Laurie being chased by Michael. The, you know, to me, the, the, it's like uh, in Django and Chain when after Leo and uh, Christoph Waltz are gone, I'm like, all right. I mean, it's cool action, but my main investment is is gone from the movie. And same here, like Loomis is gone, yeah. and now it's just it's just a slasher shot the the Rob Zombie way. So it, it, that's not her fault as an actress. It's just her character's underdeveloped, and as if that wasn't enough. She has the baggage uh, to deal with. Massive. Because it's not just the baggage of the Halloween franchise. It's the the baggage of Jamie Lee Curtis as an actress. So, yeah. I mean, she was set up to fail. That that sounds about accurate. You know, you're saying you don't know. Does she know of these things? Does she know she killed her brother? You know, we as the audience don't know what she knows. You know what I I knew as a member of the audience? That, That fucking final chase scene went on about 10 minutes too long. That uh, <laughs> that is one of those things. The first time I watched this movie is the only time that worked for me, just because the suspense and it, it is kind of cool when he takes the two by four and is knocking out all the, like the the roofing to see if he can find her. But mm-hmm. my God, when you've seen that movie more than once, that drags on like a motherfucker. And then also just like the uh, the way that Michael is portrayed in this movie, it makes no fucking sense that he would just tackle her off a roof. Like he runs and spears her like he's fucking Goldberg, and it's <laughs> it makes no sense. And the way you know the way they end up, like I said, I'm complimentary of that. The way the movie ends, but that and the the Michael is very inconsistent in this, and also the way it's painted in this movie. The way Michael is is you know this monstrous killing machine as opposed to the shape of the original. So like. I can buy in the original that he would put that sheet on his head and wear those glasses and surprise PJ souls. But in this, when he shows up wearing the sheet over his head, just so they can pay homage to the original, it's Mm -hmm. again, maybe if it was just a standalone, it would work. But because it is part of this franchise and goes by the same name and makes sure to make all these references, it's, it's, uh, it's hard not to compare. And, And honestly, uh, as much complimentary as I said about this movie, I think the biggest thing, the biggest difference that has happened in the past two years since the 2018 one, which again, we will be finishing this uh, uh, part of this series with, until that movie came out and I saw the reception that it got, I thought that it was a thankless role being a person that made a Halloween movie. Because, <laughs> you know, we obviously this is a much different scale, but like Star Wars. Like when J.J. Abrams got cast, I remember us just talking about like, God bless him because it's a thankless role. But as we've seen with things like The Force Awakens and then on a different scale, the 2018 Halloween, no, it can still be pretty good. Uh, So you watch something like this and it's like, I'm glad we have something like the 2018 Halloween that shows how 
to do it and how that you can do it in a way that most people will be pleased by it and then come back to something like this. So then that way you can analyze it and break apart the things that work about it, the things that don't. It it makes it uh, way more easy to be analytical about this this movie. And, you know, a lot, I know a lot of people have. A lot of people fucking hate this movie. A lot of people love it. And I think I'm falling somewhere in the middle. So, you know, we focus on a lot of this so far. Talked about Loomis. Talked about Lori. I'm going to do a quick uh, rapid fire here. We talked about Danielle Harris. It's one of those things of watching this. Like, I kind of wish that she had gotten more work. I know there's that weird stigma about child actresses or child actors and actresses, what have you, especially coming from the horror franchise. But it's like, I'm not kidding. Just like with how polished she comes across in her scenes and whatnot. It's, uh, you know, she was in once upon a time in Hollywood, but I don't even think she got a single line in it. I just, I wish she would had had more opportunities. And I think you agree that she was one of the highlights of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, I didn't know who she was. The two previous times I watched the movie, and this time I was kind of paying attention because you reminded me that she was in it, and then I was like, "Oh, it's her friend." Uh, yeah, she's she's easily the strongest out of the three. Uh, I mean, because she's a good performer, and I guess because they they write the character, allowing it to come alive. I guess <laughs> she doesn't have to live up to any sort of uh, previous uh, mythology or place in the Halloween mythology. Yeah, no, she's great. Uh, it's kind of a you know, I, I, it could turn corner. We couldn't figure out why she survives. And I really, what I think is turns corner. I say here, I, I don't know. It could be at this point that she survives because she's Danielle Harris. <laughs> it was the first point I checked out with in ha- Rob Zombie's Halloween two was when she got killed. I was like, motherfucker, like you <laughs> saved her in the first one and you're going to kill her in this. And I, you know, there were a lot of things that checked me out of that movie, but that was definitely it. Um, quick you know little research i did on it she thought doing the she agreed to the movie knowing she would be topless for the majority of like her or for her the entirety of her chase scene and she thought like it would help shed the image of her being a child actor and i I think that's kind of weird psychology but um anyway uh i wasn't kidding in contrarian's corner ken foree's cameo fills me with just unadulterated joy uh just because you could tell he was just so happy to be in that ridiculous wig and facial hair. <laughs> like it's, I don't know. There is something about, we've talked about this so much, but especially grizzled, no pun intended, grizzled vets like that having a small part, but clearly having so much fun with it. And even Sid Haig, who I would not be surprised at all. If you told me he just showed up to set like that with his hair all fucked up and, uh, <laughs> you know, just probably reeking of tobacco and, <laughs> I think there's clearly something to the people that Rob Zombie chooses for his movies that are able to elicit the emotions that they are. And obviously he is the land of misfit toys type thing. He's gotten a lot from people that were kind of cast aside by Hollywood. And I think as someone who's a fan of the horror franchise, that that is kind of rewarding. Like Bill Mosley, Ken Faree, Sid Haig, seeing these guys get their opportunity to shine is very nice. Um, other than that, though, you know, I think we've kind of covered the the whole rigmarole of it all. And I just I, think- I just thought of something that uh, kind of 
uh, not redeeming, but I I think I, I mentioned it in Contreras Corner. The one moment where it works for me between uh, Lori and Michael is when she wakes up and you know they have that quiet moment. Yeah, uh, it works because that's the one emotional thing that we have linking them that we know and he knows that she is his little sister and for that moment that's that's really what's driving the the sequence is just that we know that that's the 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 big question right okay he got her now what and uh if if that final if what you want is to have the movie end with Laurie killing him, I think that you needed to address that a little more. Uh, it really, it really needed to be, be paid off more. And, and just uh, from what I remember, that's part of what Rob Zombie's second Halloween movie is about, about how Laurie deals with either the knowledge of the fact that he, she actually had to murder her brother or, just the trauma of having gone through uh, what she goes through in this movie. So whatever the case, her character finally takes off as an interesting character <laughs> in the next movie, uh, <laughs> which yeah, I guess wasn't even really planned at this point. But I, I guess that's that's one more perplexing thing about Rob Zombie's Halloween. You know, despite his best efforts, pieces together interesting parts of a puzzle. I think he kind of does it unintentionally in some aspects, but... <laughs> Uh, it's like I said before we started recording and, you know, since I've said since I come away from this every time unsure of how I feel about it. Obviously, the older I get and the more articulate and the longer flushed out discussions like this I can have with people like yourself, I I'm able to isolate the things that I don't like. And there are a good amount of those and they dominate a large part of the story, but there are things about this. I do enjoy uh, just lastly here. We didn't touch on it, but the act it, and sorry again, brother, not going to try to pronounce your name. Young Michael uh, <laughs> thoughts on him. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's, he's good. I mean, I, I guess he's better than I'm kind of in my head, giving him credit for because I, I, I found, I, it might be the perfect storm of he's doing what is required of him, just the same way that Scout Taylor Compton is doing what's required of her. But in his case, the movie crafted around him is more effective. Uh, it's more interesting. So that helps. But, uh, you know, he's creepy. He he could have... Kid actors are such a wild card that... Uh, he, I think he, he pulled it off. I don't know. Did you feel differently? Did, did he not work for you? No, I, I don't think the like the writing, the way characters are written in this, like we just said, have results may vary, but I honestly I can't think of a single like acting performance in this that I would outright call bad. I agree. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> brought it. Yeah. So yeah, young Michael was fine. I just I would have felt we were doing him a, a disservice by not bringing him up. So I, I would hope that he went on to make uh, lighter fare. He was in Hancock, so there you go. Eh. <laughs> Wrapping up here on Rob Zombie's Halloween, it's 
every time I watch it, I come away with something new, which I, I that's that, that's a compliment of a movie. It, it, whether it's good or bad, being able to watch something multiple times and take away something new to talk about or something new to think about is good. And obviously, I wouldn't have that uh, if I didn't have such a strong you know correlation to the franchise itself and such a strong attachment to the subject material. But um, yeah, I, I think it, it is what it is. And I think it, it's a lot of the discussion we had the first go around about there's a lot of interesting things to it. Whether that means it works entirely uh, is a different discussion. But if we're doing our rankings here and our final thoughts on it, I think I would have to give it a C uh, because where it does succeed is very good, but there's overall flaws to it that I, I have a hard time looking past, but it's one of those C's. I guess it has to be a C plus because I I'm willing to visit it repeatedly. And I'm even like working myself into a shoot over here about watching it with Rob zombies, director commentary, which like <laughs> you would think sounds like absolute death, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the disclaimer. needle drops in that commentary must be legendary. I was about to say disclaimer. I'm probably not going to do that. I likely will watch this movie again next year when it gets to this time of the year and just have it in my Halloween rotation. But, you know, it's I give him props at the same time. I think he goes too far in certain aspects. But if nothing else, like we just said like two minutes ago, there is no outright bad acting in this movie everyone who's in it does a good job and that itself is at least warrants watching it once yes unless you already know that that rob zombie's style is not your cup of tea yeah i'm sorry it warrants watching it once if you're like a horror fan but yeah if you're just a normal movie viewer that uh or if you've seen any rob zombies movies and they're not for you this isn't going to sway you none of his movies that i will see will change your opinion on him you know it's not like he's a director that you know, not like Wes Craven that makes kind of these kind of different things. Some of these have, you know, okay, that one's kind of funny and that one's a little bit heartwarming and whatnot. No, it's the same shit every single time as far as just from a brutality <laughs> and misogynistic standpoint. Um, but if you haven't watched this and you're a fan of horror or whatnot and th think about, you know, maybe giving it a go, I recommend it if for nothing else, like I said, than the acting. But yeah, this is not something I would recommend to a normal movie viewer. And even even so, even from the perspective of being a huge horror fan like me, it's still just a C plus. Years ago when we did our, our Rob Zombie marathon, uh, I watched this movie sandwiched between House of a Thousand Corpses and Lords of Salem. So Oof. yeah, so I gave it three stars because... It, it got graded on the curve, right? It, it stood out as a movie that that was a movie versus two movies that just didn't make sense. And uh, not having that benefit this time around, the, it, the flaws bothered me a lot more. I was less tired, but less worn out by Rob Zombie. So I was able to just assess it on its own. I, I'm downgrading it to two and a half stars. Like you said, it has a lot of stuff that works and stuff that even when it's not necessarily approached in a way that's compatible with my sensibilities, I can still recognize that it's it's something worth exploring. But I think it drops the ball massively uh, in the third act and that, that really sinks the movie. Uh, as cool as that final shot is, the last, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes are just like, eh. Uh, so yeah, yeah, two and a half for me. That chase scene is brutal, but yep. I, I do love the idea of Rob Zombie just being able to atrophy you away enough that 
All right. I'll give you three stars. Just let <laughs> like me be. It. Just no more, please. Let me live. All right. So that concludes the first installment in Haddonfield Nights. Uh, next episode, we'll be moving on to the 1978 all-time seminal classic great contribution to the film industry, Halloween. My favorite movie of all time. So uh, as you can imagine, there'll be a lot to say. As always, we want to give a shout-out to the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks. Uh, they always kick us off with Last Stand. Bring us home with Summer of 99. Thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. As you may have noticed, we have a new logo uh, seasonal for the next two months while uh, Haddonfield Nights is going on. And that is, once again, thanks to the man that did our original logo, uh, Hans Ruth Gieser. As you might expect, he's an artist, but he's also a writer. He's an economist. He does all sorts of things. You can uh, find his work at his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Uh, that's also how you find him on Twitter, at Mildemonios. That's how you contact him uh, through email, mildemonios at hotmail.com. He has three podcasts, uh, Nación Combi and Marginal are in Spanish. You can find those in any podcatcher about Peruvian current events and about economy, respectively. And he also has a podcast in English on iVox called living in peru about immigrants to peru he has a brand new book called somos zombies translates in english to uh, we are zombies it's uh it's actually an anthology of uh zombie short stories written by a whole bunch of uh peruvian authors i think 26 short stories and and hans is i guess the the guy that put them all together that's the latest thing he's doing i'll have the link to all his work including this new one on our show notes and as has become customary here on The Contrarians, I want to give a special shout out to Zoe Perez for helping operate our social media game, up our social media game, I should say, uh, doing so via our Instagram account and our Facebook account, which are both Contrarian Prime. So, Zoe, we appreciate your help and contributions to helping us get our name out there more and in such a stylish, good-looking way. So, everyone be sure to check that out. Julio, I believe that uh, concludes the first installment of Haddonfield Nights, and what a what a kickoff it was, and there is so, so much more to come. All right, so we appreciate y'all tuning in to the first installment here of our six-part Halloween series. Uh, yeah, if, if so inclined, you can go back and listen to us talk about Rob Zombie's entire filmography several years ago, much like Rob Zombie's filmmaking style. It's not a pretty sight. <laughs> But that will do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. That's